Welcome to Hack Stack Level 2. We will now be giving you all the hacks you need to take your life to greater heights and deeper fulfillment. To get the most out of this show, please listen to the basic training of episodes 1 through 11. And now, let's start hacking. Here's your host, Coz. Hey, welcome everyone to the final episode relating to money. Uh, Today we're going to talk about basically just the philosophy of money, how it intertwines to some of the audiobooks that we've just listened to, those being the Dave Ramsey Total Money Makeover, uh, The Millionaire Next Door, and Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So we're going to talk about those three books a little bit and also talk uh, about uh, basically my take on those books and how um, I kind of break those out into school of thought number one and school of thought number two when it comes to money. So this will be a heavy philosophical uh, financial driven type episode. So these philosophical questions about finances, um, they come into play whether you have a lot of money or or a little bit of money. Um, Obviously, if you have a little bit more money, things are usually or should be a little bit easier than if you have less money. And I don't know about you, but I frequently get these emails. I would say I get these emails probably two, if not three times per month. And they're emails usually from uh, a prince or some dignitary in the far off land of Kenya Emails claim that they're looking for a place to to put some money, and wouldn't you know it, you are the lucky person that could be the beneficiary of this money. So we're going to start off with a commercial I just saw. Um, reason I like it is because A, I get emails like this all the time, and B, it involves talking to Siri on your iPhone, which I do frequently. Uh, all the way back from episode one, we were talking about the reminder hack with Siri, And uh, I think it ties in nicely and it's a little bit of humor. So we're going to roll this quick commercial of a guy who's sitting on his couch, uh, just chilling, eating a sandwich, and he's talking to his phone, asking to check his email. And this is the email that he gets. Hey Siri, read me my unread emails. Princess have sent you an email about life-changing opportunity if you please. It says, I have a once-in-a-lifetime investment opportunity for the making of many of millions of currency. Would you like to reply? Uh, yeah. Okay, what would you like the email to say? Sign me up. Okay, Bill, here's your email message to Prince Asif. Thank you, Barry. <laughs> All right, man, I love that commercial. Many millions of currency. I, I love how those things are worded. So... Hopefully you guys enjoyed that little quick uh, commercial. If you haven't ever received those emails, it won't be nearly as funny as it is to me and the other people in the listening audience that do frequently get those emails. So anyway, humorous little way to start to show off. But um, so let's let's jump into this a little bit more. Um, We are about to play a clip from a book called Thou Shall Prosper by Rabbi Daniel Lapin. And the subtitle of this book is called The Ten Commandments for Making Money. And what I love about this book is how it addresses money in such a philosophical way in the context of religion and what money truly represents. And it just gives a ton of insight about how to think about money, 
uh, what it really means. It has a, a whole intro on uh, addressing the stereotypes that uh, Jewish people have more money or they're stingy with money or uh, think of any Jewish stereotype you can think about as far as Jews and money. And he goes on to annihilate uh, those stereotypes and and talk about the real reasons why uh, Jews as a population have better financial IQ than the population in general. And that's just a, a fascinating uh, discussion. At the end of the episode, I'm also going to have some extra credit for you. And I'll also talk a little bit more about... Um, how I find some of these books and what books I find that are worth reading. And you can employ some of these methods as well to uh, start to pick out some of the the books that you can read and use in your life to uh, enrich yourself. For now, I'm going to play this clip from the book, Thou Shall Prosper. And it's just a really interesting clip uh, to get your wheels turning in your mind, just to think about money and maybe some of the stereotypes you have about money. And it starts off with a, an interesting analogy about an airplane. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that more after we play the clip. So let's roll it right now. You know that life isn't perfect. This awareness is rooted in your spiritual nature. It is only within the most abstract part of your being that you can conceive of an ultimate perfection for which part of us constantly yearns. There is nothing wrong with that yearning, so long as you never allow it to paralyze you. Stay aware of perfection, but never allow it to sideline you to the spectator's stands in the game of life and business. Which of the choices do you like less? Life often boils down to being able to function within less than ideal circumstances. Take, for instance, the constant criticisms of business and of the entire socioeconomic system in which you operate. Does it function perfectly for all people all the time? No, of course, it does not. I would wager that there have been many times that you have felt that you did not receive the rewards you deserved. I know that I have felt this. Slightly less enthusiastically, I have also been compelled to acknowledge that on many occasions I have enjoyed rewards that I did not deserve. The system is not perfect. Everyone agrees on that. Judaism has taught that people should operate as best as they can within the imperfection, because idealistic perfection is unattainable by human beings. Once I recognize that fallible human beings can never create a truly perfect economic system, I can also recognize that the present system in which I live and function is an amazingly successful one. When something goes terribly wrong with an airplane in midair, and it plunges into the ocean, countless investigators gather to probe the catastrophe and to find out why the airplane fell out of the sky. Without meaning to be flippant, I can provide the only accurate answer in one word. Gravity. The real question is not why the airplane fell. That is obvious. The natural condition is for everything to fall to earth. The real question is, what kept the airplane up there in the first place? It remained airborne, 
because its engines converted much of the chemical energy stored in fuel into thrust. It had wings that could convert thrust into lift. Remove any one of these vital elements, and the natural effect of gravity will take its sad course. The U.S. socioeconomic system is similar. Many well-intentioned people also constantly convene meetings to probe the root causes of poverty. They question what brought the plane down, or why everyone isn't airborne and wealthy. The answer is simple, if unpopular. Poverty is normal, just as a plane on the ground is more normal than one in the air. This is true even though Americans are unaccustomed to real poverty. Smart people should really flock to conferences to probe the root causes of wealth. Just as it is normal for objects dropped off a roof to fall to earth, so it is perfectly normal for wealth to slide down the slope to poverty. It takes enormous energy to boost a hundred-ton airplane off a runway and it takes enormous energy to create a society of wealth. A society of wealth is not made any less amazing by the fact that some, or even many individuals in that society, own less than many others. When you examine almost any society that has succeeded in lifting many of its citizens above the level of day-to-day -day subsistence, you are likely to find some in that society who have considerably less than others. There is little reason to indict a society on account of those in it who have less. The miracle is that virtually nobody is struggling for actual survival. The condition of those who have less than others, even a lot less, is sad, but normal. However, there is much reason to praise a society that has lifted the lives of most of its citizens well above the level of daily need and fear, even if it has not done so for everybody. Although society should do its best to make it possible for everyone to improve his or her lot, and each citizen should be able to find a way to advance his or her economic interests, expecting the same results for all people is pursuing a perfection that does not exist anywhere in the real world. So that's a really interesting concept and really fascinating analogy to me. You know, people that really study um, socioeconomic uh, differences among people and, and why poverty exists and what are the root causes of poverty, uh, these are all good questions. But uh, after hearing that clip, it's really interesting uh, to think about, well, Maybe the real real question is we need to study successful people and successful financially viable cultures and what are they getting right that other cultures are not getting right. And more specifically, how that relates to, to maybe you is just think about that. Like, yeah, the default position for an airplane is on the ground. I mean, it takes a tremendous work of craftsmanship and engineering and physics and all of that stuff working together to get an airplane airborne. But the de the default position is that sucker is on the ground. Uh, just like the default position is for people to be out of shape. Uh, the default position is for people to 
be a bad husband or a bad friend or a bad employee. I mean, you, you actively have to combat these default positions. You know, I've heard this called uh, inertia or um, other people just phrase it, you know, if you're not moving forward, you're moving backwards. And, and there's a lot of truth to, to all of these, um, but it's, it's, it's basically different ways to say the same thing. Like if you're not active in progressing towards something positive, most of the time you're either um, at best staying static or at worst moving backwards. And physical fitness is a perfect example. I mean, no one just wakes up and they're automatically an athlete. You know, you have to work toward that. You have to train for that. And a lot could be said about uh, financial fitness as well. And when it comes to money, there's two types of, um, I don't know, I don't know if you'd call it like a subclassification, but, um, you know, you can either A, you can work for somebody or B, you can work for yourself and be an entrepreneur. Uh, And before you jump into too many stereotypes one way or the other of which is better, um, you know, me personally, I, (laughs) I do a combination of both. And I'll talk a little bit about that later on. But for now, I'm going to play another clip from Thou Shalt Prosper. And I just want to continue to maybe uh, squash some stereotypes that maybe you have uh, when it comes to business and money. Uh, In particular, two stereotypes. A, that you have to be really smart to start your own business. And B, just the concept that um, business in general is sometimes considered evil or nasty or selfish or greedy or any thoughts along those lines, uh, I want to uh, play this clip to maybe address some of those concerns. So check this out. It became quite clear to me that an IQ that slides down the right-hand slope of the IQ bell curve into the upper triple digits just as likely condemns you to fail in business. But wait. Isn't Bill Gates of Microsoft reputed to possess an unusually high IQ? Certainly he does. But remember, this book is not about becoming Bill Gates. Bill Gates is a rare aberration. He is an event that occurs only once or twice in an epoch when absolutely everything lines up perfectly. To be Bill Gates requires a very high IQ. However, to be astoundingly successful in business, say, as successful as Sam Walton of Walmart, one need only possess an IQ that falls within a very broad range of acceptability. If, indeed, Jews as a group do enjoy exceptionally high intelligence, they succeed in business in spite of those scores, not because of them. Super-brilliant intellectuals become idiosyncratic chess players, or they tend to gravitate to the faculties of major universities. For the most part, they are notoriously inept at business and seldom become tycoons. They are often seen as brilliant, but not quite with it. To succeed in business, it is far more important to know how the world really works than it is to be brilliant. For every Thomas Edison who both was brilliant and became affluent through his brilliance, there are many stories of creative inventors who died penniless and whose invention was later utilized and marketed by a much more normal person who made his or her own fortune. 
The good news is that although it is very difficult to increase one's native intelligence, it is considerably easier to learn how the world works. More to the point. Do the vast majority of Americans understand and appreciate what business contributes to their well-being? Do you feel the same pride in the good you accomplish merely by running your business as you do in the civic and charitable work you do? You can't earn an honest living without pleasing others. Here's another example. I knew a young woman who made a fairly good living for herself and her daughter as a pharmaceutical company representative. She visited doctors' offices and introduced the caregivers to her company's new medications. She often would relate to me the sheer terror she felt on walking into a doctor's office in her sales district. Then one day, while visiting her office, I overheard her on the phone. She sounded brutal. First she begged, and then she threatened. She obviously wasn't going to take no for an answer. After a few minutes, she hung up the phone with a triumphant grin. Got him for a thousand dollars, she crowed. It turned out that she was raising funds for breast cancer research. When I asked her why she felt so much more comfortable browbeating a contractor into a donation than a doctor into a pharmaceutical purchase, her shocking answer was, but this is for a good cause. Few people can truly excel at occupations about which they entertain moral reservations. That woman was convinced that raising money for medical research was good and worthy, while selling pharmaceuticals was selfish. It made her uneasy. When asked about her occupation, she tried to disguise it as something other than what it was. However, she frequently related how much money she had raised for charity. Why would she never have considered boasting about the commissions she earned the previous month? She was shocked when I suggested to her that her monthly commission check was a measure of how helpful she had been to the doctor, his patients, her own company, and the hundreds of other employees of her company who depended on her sales efforts. Deep down, she must have felt that selling medicine clearly did nothing for anyone else. She might even have suspected that she was helping her company earn the kind of obscene profits that television pundits constantly condemn. She had no confidence that her method of earning a living was more moral than that of a snake oil salesman of yesteryear. Deep down, she did not believe that she was doing the doctor and his patients a favor, while at the same time, of course, benefiting herself. While you may think the way you make your living has little to do with how CEOs of major corporations make theirs, the fact is that with very few exceptions, most people develop revenue by doing or supplying things for others. That is called business. Unless you are a justice of the Supreme Court, a tenured professor, or a rabbi with a lifetime contract, you are probably in business. You may well be an employee, but like an independent business professional, you can find a new customer, which is to say you are free to seek and find a better job. 
Just like an independent business owner, you too can find an additional customer. You can take a second job or develop a part-time home-based business. You undoubtedly have many products or services that could improve the lives of those around you. No matter what you do, the odds are that you are in business. And it is much tougher to succeed if, deep inside, you lack respect for the dignity and the morality of business. If the heads of Fortune 500 companies are being excoriated as immoral exploiters, so are you. The difference is only one of degree. You can easily imagine what an enormous competitive advantage is acquired by the business professional who really believes, no, really, really believes, with every microscopic molecule of his or her being, that doing business is one of the most moral and best things to do. Only if you understand the extent to which your chosen profession is vilified by so many of those among whom you live, do you stand any chance at all of expunging the subtle self-hatred from your own soul. Again, I assure you that if any lingering remnant of moral repugnance for business still lurks in your heart, you would best find another occupation. Once you realize how stealthily this notion, that business is immoral, insinuates itself into your mind, you can be ready for the crucial preparation for success. Extirpating the false notion from your own heart. The next step is discovering some of the virtues and aspects of morality in business. Your Path to Prosperity Begin embracing these two related notions. One, you are in business, and two, the occupation of business is moral, noble, and worthy. Okay, so there were some pretty cool things covered in that clip. Uh, first and foremost, uh, you should realize that, that you are in business, and the business you are in is noble and worthy. And if you truly don't believe that's the case, it may be time to find another job. And it was pretty pretty neat. You can say, well, you know, I'm in business for myself and I can find a new customer. And when I say new customer, I mean new employer. So uh, you have the freedom to find a new employer if, if you would like. But you really should think about the good that the company you work for is doing for, for people in general. Even the example given the pharmaceutical rep, she almost felt bad that she was working for a pharmaceutical company. And I know occasionally you will hear headlines about drugs that hurt people or CEOs of drug companies that do bad and greedy and selfish things. And, and no doubt that does occasionally happen. But by and large, these huge pharmaceutical companies provide just unbelievable benefits to humanity and far, as far as disease control and pain relief, you know, things of that nature. So although it's not perfect, the benefits of pharmaceuticals far outweigh the downside. And it's just really good to get in the, the frame of mind to start to to understand that and realize the benefits that some of these companies offer. And it also honestly takes a little bit away from the cynicism that people often carry in life, namely that all big companies are bad. That's a really 
that's a really bad blanket statement to kind of kind of hold either explicitly or implicitly in your mind. But enough about you know some of these big philosophical uh, concepts. Those were just sort of uh, warm up clips to to get your mind thinking uh, and get you in the right frame of mind as far as money goes. Uh, I now want to specifically talk about uh, Dave Ramsey and Robert Kiyosaki. Okay, so let's talk about these two schools of thought when it comes to money. And my first instinct is to um, think about this, not necessarily which one is better, uh, but which one is better for you. And as often happens in some of these discussions, people can sometimes get bent out of shape defending which system is better. Uh, and for the most part, people don't even have a system. So <laughs> that's just one thing to remember. But sometimes you'll, you'll get into, it's kind of akin to when people talk about which way to exercise is better. And they go through all the pluses and minuses of each various system whether it's uh, you know running or lifting weights or CrossFit or spin class or some yoga or some combination thereof, you know everyone's got what they think is better and why. But at the end of the day, as long as you are are exercising, whatever <laughs> whatever form of exercise works for you and you are going to be consistent with and you are comfortable with, that is probably the best system. So with that in mind, let's talk about these two schools of thought. You've got you've got Dave Ramsey, which uh, I classify as school of thought number one, uh, the more conservative approach, and you've got Robert Kiyosaki, school of thought number two, which I would classify as uh, a little more aggressive and creative. But to be clear, if let's uh, let's just look at the scorecard of of net worth. Okay, so I uh, went to my trusty friend Google and looked this up. So. Uh, Dave Ramsey's net worth is approximately $55 million. Uh, Robert Kiyosaki's net worth is approximately $80 million. So they're both doing pretty okay. Uh, I can already tell you Dave Ramsey probably has very little. Actually, I, I know for sure. He, he's got no debt. Like that's his whole, that's his whole sales pitch, right? Debt-free, debt is bad, debt is horrible, stay away from it. Robert Kiyosaki, on the other hand, I can tell you <laughs> with certainty that he has a whole bunch of debt. Now he has assets that well exceed those debts, hence his net worth of, of $80 million. But nonetheless, if you can pick a school of thought on money and do that well, uh, chances are uh, you'll do fine. You may not get to these <laughs> $55 million and $80 million markers, but the point is uh, potentially either system can work. And it's just a matter of what your comfort level is, uh, what your risk tolerance is, and things of that nature. But there is a what I call the point of tension between these two schools of thought. So so Dave Ramsey is is very straightforward. Uh, you save your money. Uh, you go through your baby steps. Obviously, you, you start with an emergency fund. Uh, you start paying off uh, revolving credit card debt. And then eventually, um, you get completely out of debt, in, including your mortgage. Now, the point of tension comes in with what I just said, your mortgage. So you you have to borrow money to buy a house, typically. Um and I think Dave Ramsey is okay with that. 
he's got different rules of thumb for the the loan to value ratio. And for those of you that that don't know what that means, take a a hundred thousand dollar house. Say you buy that house and you put five thousand dollars down, right? So your down payment is five thousand dollars. Well, you have to get a loan for ninety five thousand dollars for the difference, and you get that from a bank or a lending institution, and and that's your mortgage. So your loan to value ratio is 95%. So the higher your LTV, the more leveraged and the more in debt you are. And Dave Ramsey has some basic rules of thumb that he likes to apply when you are considering buying a house. Ideally, he would like you to buy a house for cash. Um, For most people, that's not possible. So he would like to see uh, a down payment of at least 10%. Uh, you get a mortgage of 15 years and not 30 years, as people often do. And he wants to limit your monthly payment to less than 25% of your monthly take-home pay. But this is where I would tend to disagree with Dave Ramsey, and here's why. Um, the, The main reason is you need a place to live, and you have a rent payment, which you're paying every month. And that is going toward nothing. That is just a a sunk cost, uh, just a living expense. Uh, However, you can typically, uh, not not always, but typically you can purchase a home that will offer you nicer amenities, uh, probably a little bit bigger, and be less per month than your rent. So to me, that's where the point of tension is. And when I say point of tension, uh, I mean that between the two schools of thought and specifically on the topic of debt and even more specifically on the topic of real estate. Dave Ramsey is basically saying that debt is bad. However, when it comes to a mortgage, he has rules of thumb on how much you should borrow. So some debt, to some degree, even in the Dave Ramsey school of thought, uh, can be a useful thing. Now, Robert Kiyosaki goes against the grain completely saying that the house you live in is actually not even an asset because he defines assets as something that brings cash in the door. Uh, And if you're living somewhere and you have a mortgage, that is cash going out the door. So that is not an asset. So you've got all sorts of interesting perspectives when it comes to uh, getting a loan for a piece of real estate in which you are going to live. And it is worth noting some of the uh, personal history of these two individuals and what drives their philosophies when it comes to money. So Dave Ramsey um, was basically an entrepreneur. Um, I think he was a millionaire relatively young. I I may be getting some of the details wrong here, Um, but I I would like to... I think he was... A millionaire in his 20s, but he was highly leveraged in real estate and that caused him to go bankrupt. He obviously did not like that feeling and that's when he came up with the whole debt is bad, get out of credit card debt, you know, cash is king type of philosophy. And to be clear, there is a huge emotional advantage uh, to not having any debt whatsoever. So Dave Ramsey used his bankruptcy to fuel his passion and drive his philosophy uh, of money toward that zero debt type of mentality. 
Robert Kiyosaki, on the other hand, has also claimed bankruptcy, but not not personal bankruptcy. He's got uh, multiple corporations, and one of his businesses did claim bankruptcy, but that was a matter of (laughs) just a rich man being smart and having uh, asset protection plans in place. Uh, I think one of his businesses got sued, and it just looked like the liability was mounting up, so he just had that business claim bankruptcy. So the large majority of his assets were completely protected, but that one individual business uh, went by the wayside. So anyway, you've got two really financially literate individuals that are both high net worth individuals, have both made a lot of money, uh, have both gone through bankruptcies, and have diverse, um, for the most part, diverse opinions on the philosophy of money. Now, like I alluded to before, I tend to lean toward the Robert Kiyosaki school of thought and full disclosure. um, Here's kind of my experience that led me (laughs) to that path. Uh, I started very young. I don't don't know. Something about the stories in Rich Dad, Poor Dad resonated with me when he was trying all these businesses when he was young. And it's probably because I tried several businesses when I was very young. When I was in middle school, I used to uh, buy these little packets of candy um, called Now and Laters. I'm not sure if they're still around. They probably are. But I used to buy them for $0.10 a pack. And I would sell them at school for quite a hefty markup of $0.25 a pack. So I had a decent amount of money as a uh, 6th and 7th grader. I also saw a late night infomercial when I was a kid and it was called the Dave Del Dotto cash flow system and it cost $200 and I used some of the money that I made from selling candy. I saved up that money. I went to the local drugstore and got a cashier's check because I was terrified to tell my parents that I was going to spend $200 on this, what I'm sure they thought was a scam. And I sent away the cashier's check and got this cash flow system and I studied it and read it and was fascinated by it and uh, realized that you pretty much couldn't get a loan when you were under 18. But I did glean from that piece of information that you had to have really good credit uh, to buy real estate and that always stuck with me. And I also read Donald Trump's book, I think it was called The Art of the Deal, that was sometime out in the in the mid '80s. I read that book, so I was always sort of fascinated with that stuff. So by the time I stumbled across uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad, uh, it was a relatively easy sell for me. And I didn't discover Dave Ramsey for probably another decade after that. So just so you know where I'm coming from, um, I'm I'm heavily influenced by school of thought number two, the Robert Kiyosaki method. Uh, and Dave Ramsey is sort of a secondary influence on me. And I guess I call it school of thought number one for Dave Ramsey because it's it's a little more simple, uh, less complicated, uh, a little more intuitive, and uh, a lot less risky. And I think that resonates with most of the population. So now that you know where I'm coming from, I, I just I need to make a couple statements and then you can sort of evaluate and sort of come to whatever conclusion that you feel is best for yourself. Uh, so I truly believe you either are a number school of thought number one, school of thought number two, or some combination thereof. If, if you don't feel 
like comfortable running a business or taking a little bit of chances here and there, you are definitely school of thought number one. But but just be clear that if you are a school of thought number one, you need to do that really, really well because all you have, your only source of income is your paycheck. And until you can get completely out of debt and use your money to then in turn buy investments like zero debt real estate or stocks and bonds and income producing uh, assets, you have to be very, very disciplined uh, to get to that point. And it takes a long time and it's it's well worth it, but you need to be uh, very disciplined. Now me personally, I'm more along the lines of the biggest risk is not taking one. Another thing that resonates with me is if you really want to take a risk, only have one source of income, <laughs> that being your job, because you could be fired and then you would have no sources of income. And that seems kind of risky for me. So I like to straddle the line and I love having the stability of a nine to five job uh, as well as having um, just that desire to to be an entrepreneur and have your own business and sort of call your own shots and do your own thing. And that's why I am into real estate as, I guess you'd call it a hobby. Hopefully someday it grows big enough where it's bigger than my uh, nine to five income. But for now it's, it's a hobby, uh, but it's a hobby that, that makes me and my family some money. And that's why I enjoy it so much. So if you firmly think you're a conservative school of thought number one, maybe just hang out a little bit longer. Uh, I'm going to give you my soft sell on <laughs> the entrepreneurial spirit of school of thought number two. And you can kind of evaluate that and come to your own conclusion. But uh, you may want to hear me out. So here is my soft sell on why you should become a real estate investor. And the, the, the number one reason is actually you probably already are a real estate investor or you are very close to becoming one. Uh, that is because you either own a house and you're living in that house that you own or you're probably thinking about buying a house. One of those two options. So if you already own a house, you know some of the benefits that that house offers. But here is why you may want to consider owning two, three, four, or even more houses in your investment portfolio. So there are a number of benefits of owning real estate. Uh, And when I say real estate, I mean other than your personal residence. Uh, Owning income-producing rental residential real estate. Uh, And here are some of those benefits. You have uh, cash flow. Um, if your mortgage payment is $800 per month and you're renting that house for $1,200 a month, well, that's $400 in cash flow. Um, now, you have to account for repairs and things like that. Um, you, depending on the age of the house, you may have uh, a couple uh, repairs you know, a couple a year or you may have something once every other month. Again, that depends on the age of the house. So if you're cash flowing 400 a month, maybe you... You take away 100 for repairs and you're still cash flowing $300 per month. You also have the benefit of principal paydown. So every payment you make, again, if you use a hypothetical $800 uh, per month payment, maybe $200 of that goes to pay down the loan you own and the difference goes to taxes, insurance, and interest payment. But that extra 200 per month uh, adds up over time. 
you also have the appreciation of the house. So if you buy a house for $100,000 and you hold it for 10 years, well, maybe at the end of that 10 years, it's worth $125,000, something like that. And then the final benefit uh, that's not often talked about is the tax advantages of owning a rental property. That being that you can write off depreciation, which is is kind of funny because typically when you think of depreciation, maybe you think of a car, you buy a car, you drive it off the lot, it immediately loses whatever, 25% in value and depreciation right then and there. Well, there's tax advantages to uh, owning real estate and you can depreciate the property. Usually it's over a period of 39 years. So uh, on paper, you get to write down an expense and that reduces your income and that therefore you pay less taxes. But the property isn't actually depreciating. It is appreciating. So you put all these things together and you've got um, the, the catchphrase that you want to remember and it's really, really the key to uh, getting some steam behind your portfolio. And that term is called passive income. And that basically means you're making money and you are not doing a thing. Your money and your investment are working for you. And it's not you working for that money. So it's sort of, it's a paradigm shift from, you know, most people think uh, if you have to if you want to make more money, you have to work harder. You have to work more hours. And this is more along the lines of it's not necessarily how hard you work. It's how smart you work. So if you find the right deal, that deal can make you money as opposed to you simply working harder or working more hours to make that money. Now, the key to owning rental income is actually finding good tenants that will pay you a monthly rent. And this is the one thing that sort of tripped me up when I first started out. I mean, I've I've owned real estate um, pretty much right after I graduated college. I started buying real estate. Now, I'd, I'd get a good deal. I'd, I'd have it a while. And then instead of holding on to it, I would sell it. And I would sell it and I'd make a, you know, a, a decent amount of money, which I would then turn around and spend because I didn't have the Dave Ramsey methodology under my belt yet at that point. But one of the big things I, and this is just an absolutely huge, massive mistake that I made on my part. The main reason I didn't want to hold the real estate was because I had this this notion in my head that I didn't want to be a landlord and I didn't want to get that proverbial phone call in the middle of the night saying, hey, my toilet's leaking, come fix my toilet. I mean, I'm not a handyman. I'm, I'm horrible with, with tools. I, I can't hardly fix anything. Um, my wife is absolutely better at fixing things around the house than I am. I, I'm pretty much inept in every sense of the word when it comes to handyman work. So I'm like, hey, I, I'm not going to be a landlord. And I had that mentality for probably 10 or 15 years. And that one little notion cost me, in my opinion, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Because if I was able to hold on and keep those properties, instead of making a little bit, if I held on to those over time, I would have made thousands upon thousands. But I've, I failed to realize, and I, I mean, I even knew it at the time, but I failed to realize that you can outsource all of that. There are property management companies that will find and screen your tenants, get good quality tenants in there, check their credits. They will sign the lease. They will 
go to bat for you if they don't pay. They will evict the tenant. They will field the phone calls if there's a maintenance issue. They won't even call you if the repair is under a certain threshold. You know, if it's whatever, $50 or less, you won't even get a phone call. So I actually have rental properties now that I don't even know who's living there. I just get a check every month. I mean, that's pretty much the definition of passive income. Now, why wouldn't someone want passive income like that? Well, it's honestly, it's a little bit outside of people's comfort zone. Uh, They maybe have some of those same hesitations that I had. They don't want to be a landlord. And those are completely understandable. Uh, But once you start to learn about real estate a little bit more, some of those obstacles don't become as big as they may actually seem. But the real obstacle is getting a down payment to buy a second house. So if you want to buy a rental property, uh, as an investor, you usually have to put 25% down. So if you're buying a $100,000 home, that's $25,000. That may take a little bit of time to save up. Or you can do what is called house hacking and you can move from your current house and buy a new house and live in the new house. And when you're an owner occupant, you get usually lower down payments, um, 5% down, maybe as little as 3% down. And instead of selling your house that you just moved from, like everyone else in the world, what they do, Uh, You just keep that house and then you rent that house. So you can kind of hop from house to house. Um, You can probably do that maybe once a year and you can build a nice little portfolio of homes that way. So if you have your personal residence and one rental home, you may be making an extra, I don't know, two to five hundred dollars a month of passive income by doing that, which which is pretty good. I mean, maybe not setting the world on fire, but you got to start somewhere. But uh, imagine you had two of those or three of those or 10 of those. Okay, well, man, two or $300, $400 a month times 10. Man, all of a sudden that's $4,000 a month. That's starting to sound a little bit better. You're like, oh yeah, yeah, sign me up. Well, that's when the rubber hits the road because that's when you actually have to save the money for the down payment or you have to move, uh, maybe move your family and, and, you know, go through that inconvenience. But, but it's funny, you know, if you put up with that inconvenience for, for a weekend of moving and moving's horrible and, and all that stuff, you may actually be able to uh, set your family up pretty good for a, a lifetime. So let's go over some hypothetical numbers. Say you you buy a rental house for $100,000. You put very little money down. Maybe you owe you still owe $95,000 on this home. Say your mortgage payment is 700, your rent payment that you receive is 1100. Uh, let's knock off $100 a month for repairs. You're cash flowing about 300 a month. Let's say in 10 years you have paid that principal down, you only owe about $80,000. The house has appreciated to let's call it 130, and you sell it at 130, and you owe 180. Well, there's fifty thousand dollars right there, and that extra 300 a month you had uh, times what 12 12 months in a year times 10 years that's another 36 thousand dollars. So you're looking at what between I don't know 70 and 95 thousand dollars just on one deal alone over 10 years. And what did you do? Well, you basically 
bought a piece of property and had someone else pay your debt for you. And that's just a vanilla transaction. And again, it's just one transaction. And you're talking, you've increased uh, the value financially to your family of, you know, seventy, eighty, ninety thousand dollars $90,000, which to me, that's pretty good for not doing a whole lot of work, especially if you outsource the management of that property. Uh, but I'm going to go into a little bit later on the extra cool benefit about doing this. Uh, and to kick off that discussion, I'm going to downshift and switch gears a little bit here. And I'm going to talk about, um, or we are going to talk about uh, retirement and just some of the misconceptions of retirement and what, what people do with their retirement years. And I really want you to get to thinking about long-term and and what you want to do long-term. And to kick off this discussion, we are going to go back to a clip uh, from Thou Shalt Prosper. We're just going to listen to this clip, and then I've got another clip, and then we'll talk about it a little bit more. All right, here you go. If you focus exclusively on acquiring wealth, for example, and ignore the other three equally important parts of your life, The paradox is is that you will end up being less effective at business over the long term. Look at the example of Gerald Levin. In early December 2001, many years before he would have been expected to retire, Levin, the man who came out on top of the biggest merger in U.S. history, announced his departure from AOL Time Warner. A brilliant and effective executive, Levin had suffered a tragedy when his son was brutally murdered in New York in 1997. A shake-up like that can cause anyone to reevaluate his life. However, that had been nearly five years earlier. So other things could have also played a role. What could they be? Here is a clue. Levin, who is Jewish and who had at one time been a student of religion, told an interviewer, I'm my own person. I have strong moral convictions. I certainly cannot explain his sudden decision to retire, but there are clues in various interviews he granted. I want my identity back, he said on December 5, 2001. I'm not just a suit. I want the poetry back in my life, was another clue. Levin seemed to be saying that he was retiring in order to devote time to develop other non-business aspects of his life. There is probably no single reason for Levin's decision, just as there is no single reason why any other relatively young executive might cap a lifetime of corporate success and boardroom triumphs with a premature retirement. Chief among the reasons, though, could be a nagging sense of neglecting an entire dimension of one's life and personality. By nurturing these areas consistently throughout life, the successful business professional will greatly increase the likelihood of deriving maximum fulfillment from his or her life. This may make him or her less susceptible to what, in Levin's case, sounds a lot like a search for meaning in life. Maintaining a Benzoma state-of-life balance makes it much easier to resist the temptation of premature retirement. Instead of promising yourself that you will play golf, read good books, 
and enjoy time with the family when you retire, you should heed Benzoma's advice and take constant little slices of retirement, as it were, each and every day of your life. Jews have a word that captures this essential theme of constantly confronting multi-front challenges. The word is shalem, from which is derived the far better known shalom, meaning peace. The root meaning of the word is totality, or comprehensiveness. Its peace connotation stems from the altogether reasonable principle that authentic and lasting peace is merely an illusion if both parties to the conflict do not feel they have been made whole and complete. The word shalem is often used in the context of human development, implying that people must constantly work on all four zones of their humanity in order to try to achieve a totality. Does anyone really want to be rich and lonely? Does anyone really want to be wise but unhealthy? Of course not. So as appealing as it may be to block out all distractions and only focus your attentions on the one specialized area of your obsession, such is not the road to success. In this sense, Judaism frowns on specialization. I may have to specialize in my professional occupation, but I should not do so in the totality of my life. So that's a pretty interesting thing, right? People sometimes work and work and work, and their whole goal is to work so they can retire, and then all they want to do when they retire is play and play and play and play. And I like this concept of taking little slices of retirement and just being a, a total person. You know, you you don't want to work 100% for a portion of your life, then play 100% for a portion of your life. You know, it's it's pretty much the concept we, we, we touched on the very first uh, episode. You know, you need that continual balance. So to reinforce that, I'm going to play one more clip. Uh, this is a clip from Rory Vaden's book, Procrastinate on Purpose. We've played several clips from this book. It's a, it's a great book. You guys need to read that. But here is one particular clip pertaining to retirement that I want you to listen to, and then we'll, we'll wrap up some things on this episode. All right, here you go. I thought leisure was the goal. I'm not sure where I got this idea from but a substantial amount of the stress I was experiencing in my life was the result of my thinking that leisure and retirement were the ultimate goals of a happy life. Maybe it was from the baby boomer mindset of, if you work hard enough, then one day you can retire. Maybe it was the entrepreneurial dream of my venture capital friends saying, it only takes one great idea and you can be rich by the time you're 30. Maybe it was the escalator mentality of an entitled younger generation always convinced that there is a shortcut or an easy way. Whatever it was, though, that gave me the idea that permanent leisure was the ultimate goal was incredibly wrong. Have you ever taken a 10-day cruise? Have you ever been bedridden for a few weeks or even a few days? Do you know anyone who retired at 30? If so, then you know there are only so many margaritas you can drink, so many hours of catching up on sleep, and so many reruns you can watch before something awful happens. You get bored out of your mind. I am all about working hard and enjoying your payoff, 
I believe in pursuing a smarter and better way. I am a supporter of pursuing your dreams and manifesting your ideas into reality. I am an advocate of making time to do the things you enjoy. And I certainly believe in the value of having more money than you know what to do with. But it took me spending time with real multipliers to realize that work isn't something to be endured, that we should try to avoid whenever possible. And it isn't something that you should have a finish line that you race to so that one day you can stop. Work is a fundamental part of life and a source of deep satisfaction. We were created to work. Work produces happiness and great rewards that fill our lives with joy. Work is one of the most honoring forms of worship that we have. Not only were we created to work, we've been instructed and warned about the dangers of not working. Do you know that according to a 2012 Nielsen report, the average person over the age of 65 watches 48 hours of television per week? That is nearly seven hours a day. That doesn't sound very rewarding if you ask me. Being a great parent takes work. Being a great leader takes work. Being great at anything takes work. Whom do you look up to who doesn't work at anything in their life or never worked for the good of another person? Who is there worth emulating who does not work? No one. Why then do we subscribe to this myth that somehow our lives would be better if we had less work. It's another misleading misconception that we carry in the back of our minds, holding ourselves up as failures and examples of how we aren't living the right life just because we are working a lot. I love how author Timothy Keller describes the goodness of our work in his book, Every Good Endeavor. The book of Genesis leaves us with a striking truth. Work was a part of paradise. We so often think of work as a necessary evil or even punishment. Yet, we do not see work brought into our human story after the fall of Adam as part of the resulting brokenness and curse. It is a part of the blessedness of the garden of God. Work is as much a basic human need as food, beauty, rest, friendship, prayer, and sexuality. It is not simply medicine, but food for our soul. Regardless of your spiritual beliefs, I hope you can see the value in this attitude toward work, because it mimics the same view that ultra-performing multipliers have, regardless of their religious faith. I am not saying that life should only be about work, but proper and appropriate amounts of work are a critical part to a satisfied life. Work is integral. Work is freedom. When done the right way, work is joy. And that's where I want to wrap things up, uh, right there. Work is joy. Work is a deep source of fulfillment. And it's my opinion, if you really want to have a really happy and really fulfilled life, pick an endeavor that will never end. Pick a task or pick a goal or pick a job that will never end. And here's what I mean. If you're if you get fulfillment from helping poor people, there will always be poor people. If you want to teach young kids how to read, underprivileged kids or at-risk kids how to read, or you want to mentor them, trust me, there will never be a shortage of underprivileged, 
at-risk children. So there can be deep joy and fulfillment in work. And and how does this tie into, <laughs> into real estate? Well, I, it may be a long shot, but let me try and connect the dots. Real estate is, see, real estate, you can make money with your mind. You know, as you get older, a lot of things give out. You know, your body starts to give out. You, you Your energy could go down. And a lot of things that you once were able to do, you can't do anymore. However, the mind seems to last a little bit longer than the body. And you can get fulfillment from work by doing some of these real estate deals that don't take physical energy as much as mental energy and finding deals and negotiating deals. And there's a certain amount of enjoyment that can come from that. And at some point, you're going to retire from your normal nine to five job. But I have a feeling when you do that, you'll still feel like you have a little bit of gas left in the tank, so to speak. And I can guarantee you, you will still have the desire to produce and earn and create things. And real estate is a really good avenue to uh, be able to still work and produce a good amount of income that you can in turn use to help your kids, help your grandkids, help uh, whatever cause you want to donate funds to. And the best part is it won't take a lot of time. So you'll go from working whatever, 40 hours per week, you can work part-time in real estate, and it doesn't take a lot of effort. You could shop for deals online, your broker could bring you deals, you could get out of the house every so often and look at some of these properties, see if they're worthwhile investments. And in essence, you could have a part-time job that takes minimal effort, uh, but still gives a deep source of fulfillment. And honestly, it could still be a really, really good source of income. Because again, just because you're retired doesn't mean you're dead and you will want to produce and you will want to still create things. And trust me, you will still long for that balance. You may want to work a whole bunch less, but I still think you'll have a pull to work at least a little bit. And you see this time and time again when people retire a little earlier and they get bored out of their mind and they they just feel the need to go back to work. So real estate is a great way to scratch that entrepreneurial itch and to scratch that desire to still produce after you retire. And it's a game that you can play for a very, very long time. All right. So that is my soft sell on why you should get involved in real estate. Uh, For those of you that are still interested in this, uh, I have a little extra credit for you where I'll go into some tangible steps that you can take to maybe start to get into the real estate game. Uh, If that's not for you, totally fine, totally understandable, no need to continue on this episode. Uh, So really, that's about it. So your your homework for uh, this episode is basically to figure out which school of thought you are in. School of thought number one, uh, school of thought number two, or maybe like myself, some combination of both one and two. But no matter where you land, I want you to really own that and be the best that you can be within those uh, schools of thought and just maximize your potential, which really comes down to being smart and disciplined with your money. So hopefully over this four-part series of money, you got a little more insight into which direction you are heading. Hopefully you're either back on course or you are at least on a course that you are now comfortable with. So that's it. 
Take care. Hopefully your financial IQ has increased and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. We hope you found a few nuggets of wisdom that you can apply to your life. Until next time, take action. Keep hacking and stacking your way to success. There's nothing wrong with your mobile device. You're venturing into deeper meaning and higher learning. It's time for Extra Credit. Extra Credit. All right, welcome to Extra Credit. Right now we are going to talk about my favorite type of income, and that is passive income. (laughs) I mean, who wouldn't want to not work and still make money? All right, so if you're listening to this, your interest is peaked concerning real estate, and I'm going to try and make this as simple as possible for you. I'm not necessarily going to teach you about real estate per se. I'm going to teach you how to teach yourself about real estate. You know, the whole give a man a fish and teach a man to fish analogy. So Robert Kiyosaki, really big into real estate. uh, And one of his big things is, hey, you need to educate yourself. You need to pay for seminars. You need to go to classes. And I guess to a certain extent, I would agree with that. However, that was all of that stuff is kind of pre-internet. There is so much free information out there or almost free information out there. There are podcasts, YouTube videos, and obviously audiobooks on the subject. And honestly, it's it's not that hard. It's going to sound, uh, it may sound funny for me to say that, but real estate isn't that tricky. I'll tell you uh, basically the Pareto principles of real estate right here and right now. There's two things you need to try and do in every real estate deal. First thing is how do you get the financing? How are you actually going to buy the real estate? And the second thing is you are going to want to buy properties under market value. Pretty simple, right? That's the whole uh, buy low and sell high. I mean, there's not a whole lot of controversy into that mentality. If you can buy low and sell high, you're doing just fine. So let's talk about the first one. Where do you get the financing? Well, you'll hear a lot of stories about people with bad credit and no credit and horrible credit scores, buying real estate with zero money out of pocket. And and true, I guess that is possible. But if you're listening to this, you're probably somewhere in the beginner category. And that is a horrible way to start your real estate career. Uh, If you want to get into this, you need to make absolutely sure that your first deal is a winner. You need to stack the deck so far in your favor that that first deal wins because if your first deal is a loser, you'll probably never do it again. So the best way to make your first deal a winner is to get financing at very low interest rates. And those interest rates are available to people with good credit. True, you can get uh, hard money loans, and which is basically borrowing money at really, really, really high interest rates. But you probably need a track record even to do that, a track record of successful real estate investing. So it's kind of a catch-22 for getting a hard money loan. So you're back to square one where you want to get loans at very low uh, conventional interest rates. And if you don't have good enough credit, well, then your first step is going to 
do some Dave Ramsey techniques and pay off all your uh, credit card debt and fix your credit score and look into what it takes to fix your credit so you can get a good loan. And if you have a good credit, you will need a down payment. And if you're going to live in the house, you can probably get away with three to 5%. So know hundred thousand dollar home you need to save up five grand to get into your first house and obviously depending on what part of the country you're in a hundred thousand dollars will buy you a decent house or (laughs) not so much so adjust the numbers accordingly i just know that here in indiana a hundred thousand dollars can get you a relatively good house as far as rental income goes so the strategy would be to get into your first house live there for whatever, six months or a year, and then move out, get another house, and then keep the house you just purchased, that $100,000 home, and then you rent that home that you're in. Now let's talk real briefly about buying below market value. How do you do that? Well, it's not as difficult as you you may think. Um, There's always distressed properties out there. It's just why are they distressed? Are they distressed because they're beat up? They need repairs, which is usually the case, or maybe they're uh, bank-owned, and the bank is just looking to get those uh, assets off of their books. That is probably the scenario you want to target the most, but you need to take it on a case-by-case basis. There is also a website, uh, hudhomestore.com, and you can just type in uh, even your own zip code, see if there's any bargains to be had there. Uh, There's usually houses that come every so often on that website. You can sometimes get a good deal on those. Uh, Probably imperative that you want to find a good real estate broker to help you out. And if nothing else, just have your real estate broker do an automated search for you that any house that comes on the market in whatever zip code you're interested in, if it's a bank-owned home, have him or her automatically email you those listings. That's probably going to be your best avenue of finding a house that's below market. But if you're just curious to see how this could actually uh, play out, um, you know, some people buy and sell stocks, and before they actually buy and sell stocks, they it's called paper trading. So they will hypothetically buy the stock. So they get the closing price on whatever Monday. Uh, they write down, okay, about a 1,000 shares of Apple at whatever, 120 a share, whatever it's trading at. And then six months later, they say, okay, I'm selling it now. And they marked it down what they sold it for, and they just do the math and say, well, if I actually had done that, how much would I have made or lost? So that's called paper trading stocks. Uh, You can do similar uh, games in real estate. And it's probably best to just start if you already own a house, just go on a website like Zillow and look up what you could potentially rent your house for. Uh, Usually there's a rent marker on there on Zillow. Uh, If not your specific house, maybe houses right around you. Uh, You could also go to a property management company and just ask them, say, hey, my house is this big, this many bedrooms, this much square feet, uh, this school system, what do you think this could rent for? And there is a sweet spot. Usually the nicer the house, um, you're, you're probably not going to fetch as much rent relative to your mortgage payment as some of those um, those middle-of-the-road houses usually rent pretty good. You know, not too cheap, but not too expensive either. You know, just right. So where I'm from, Indiana, if you've got a three-bedroom, two-bath ranch 
uh, that usually is a pretty good rental compared to, you know, <laughs> a six bedroom, 4,000 square foot uh, mansion with a basement. Um, you're probably going to have a little harder time renting that one out on a consistent basis. But a nice little three bedroom, two bath will probably rent out pretty consistently. So yeah, just play around on Zillow and say, okay, if I were to buy this house or if I were to rent my own house, for example, what would my rental income be? And what would my mortgage payment be? And then another good trick is Zillow usually has a thing called the Zestimate, which gives the approximate value of the home. Now, way back when, I didn't really trust Zillow on their their estimate of value. But here, here they are years later, and those values are actually getting really, really close to what actual value uh, is. I mean, it's not perfect, but it'll give you a ballpark. So you could just look at any zip code or any area at houses for sale. And if this estimate is, say, $150,000 and the for sale asking price is $100,000, well, that's a pretty big spread. That's maybe worth investigating. So anyway, that's kind of that's kind of the basic, that's all you do, right? You get, you get favorable financing and you buy a house uh, under value and then you rent that house. It's almost that simple. And if you can't hit all those criteria, guess what? You don't buy the house. Now, obviously I simplified that a whole bunch, but I just wanted to give you some ideas how to, how you could potentially go from zero understanding in real estate to a, a really good working knowledge to maybe a, a comfort level where you actually pull the trigger. So if you're still on board with me now, I am going to play um, a podcast for you, which would pretty much be required listening from here on out if you are interested in this. And this is an episode of a podcast called Bigger Pockets, and it deals only with real estate investing. And what they do is they just interview a, a different person every episode, uh, and they ask that person a whole bunch of questions. How did you get into real estate? What do you do to succeed? What are some of the common pitfalls? And all of these really, really good questions for a lot of people that have been there and done that. And just listening to these interviews, you can get a ton of information and a ton of ideas on what you could do in your own investment portfolio. In this particular episode I'm going to play is actually an interview with a, a youth pastor that got into uh, real estate. And why this is fascinating to me, because I don't know if you guys know any youth pastors, but they don't typically, they don't make like a ton of money, very modest incomes. And to hear the story of a youth pastor that is basically crushing it right now, it's pretty, pretty inspiring. And it just, you know, I'm sure this guy thinks of himself as just a normal guy. And he got into real estate and he's making it work and he's making it work quite well. And he's also started to uh, teach some of these concepts to his kids. So there's a whole lot of cool things that are going on in this episode and you just need to sit back, listen to it and soak it up. And if you still have an appetite after that, it's pretty simple what your homework's going to be. It's going to listen to as many episodes of Bigger Pockets as you can. And here's the really cool thing about Bigger Pockets, and I'm actually answering, as promised, what I said I would do earlier in this episode about how I come across some of the books I read and how I come to that decision. Well, it's 
it's pretty simple. It's it's some variation of word of mouth. Just like if you went to someone and said, hey, you know, how was that movie? If your friend liked it, you're more likely to see that movie. So at the end of each Bigger Pockets episode, uh, the hosts usually ask the investor that's being interviewed, like, hey, what's your favorite business book? What's your favorite real estate book? And they'll rattle off two or three books. And I usually make a note of those books. And then I, you know, if they sound interesting, I'll look them up on Amazon, look at the description. And if I'm still interested at that point, I'll, I'll give them a listen. And this episode is no different. This, this guy recommends a few books. And I think one of the books he recommends will sound very familiar to you. So anyway, without further ado, I'm going to start this episode of Bigger Pockets, and who knows, maybe this is the first step on a brilliant, amazing journey for your real estate career. All right, here you go. Enjoy. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. All right, Kurt, welcome to the show, man. It's great to have you here. Well, thanks so much. It was a real privilege to get asked. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Kurt and I met, uh, it was at the, what, Washington Landlord Association meetup, right? right. And uh, yeah, you heard me... Uh, talk for a little while and then you came up and I realized you knew like a thousand times more than I knew and I was the one talking so you should have been the one up there speaking but uh, you know you get your turn today. Nice. Yeah cool. Well why don't we start at the very beginning. I mean, how did you get into real estate investing? Oh, wow getting involved in real estate was really unintentional and it's been interesting listening to a lot of the podcasts realizing a lot of guys got in accidentally or just through a bunch of circumstances and, and that was me. I was uh, in my mid-20s I had uh, I was a youth pastor. And, oh, really? Uh, Interesting. Two of my that. good friends. We had lunch every week, and one was a realtor. The other guy was an army recruiter. And they sat down one day and said, "Hey, I'm, we're buying a fourplex. You want to join in with us?" And I was like, "Well, I don't have any money. Yeah. I'm a youth pastor." <laughs> and so uh, they they said, "Well, that's no problem. We've already put the money down, and uh, so when it makes money, your portion will go back to to pay your your share of the down payment." And it's like, well. How do you say no? <laughs> yeah, interesting. And interesting. Yeah. So uh, we bought the place, and a year later we refinanced it and uh, took cash out. So I was able to pay them all back their share, and at that point on, we've been uh, equal. Wow, wow! I, I'm fascinated by this. I, I have yet to hear somebody uh, use this model, so I've I've got to find out more. <laughs> why Why do they need you? Why are they asking you? What do you bring to the table? You knew nothing. You're a youth pastor. I mean, maybe you bring the big guy down to make sure that you know, things don't go wrong. But beyond that, what did you bring to the picture, and what was their incentive to have you on board? Well, that's a great question. I think you got to ask them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm sure you've asked them before once or twice. In reality, I, I had some business sense. Okay. Um, I, I was pretty frugal. Yeah. Some, some people call me cheap, but uh, you know, it's, it's frugal. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I knew how to take care of my own finances. And uh, some of the guys on the team weren't as good as some others. And so, you know, one guy was a realtor. He brought the deals. The other guy brought, uh, you know, some maintenance and stuff. And, and I handled the finances, the money pretty much. And uh, as we grew together and in the business, I realized I had some other abilities and aptitudes and working with the tenants and the people and that kind of thing. And so uh, it, it was a good relationship. Nice, nice. And in terms of working off your share, that's a really great idea. I mean, yeah. you know, 
you, you come in with nothing but, you know, uh, your efforts. And yeah. I like that. What, what would you think about that, Brandon? I mean, you do a lot of partnership deals. I mean, we, how, how would you feel if one of your partners said, hey, you know, you're in 50-50, I'm putting down 85K. You know, you'll get uh, your 50% share when you work the 85K off. <laughs> It's interesting. I mean, I mean, in a, in a roundabout way, that's how I've structured a lot of my partnerships. In in that, you know, I don't put in anything, and they put in. Uh, but I, I typically don't hear it from a, a newbie standpoint. You know, like getting started uh, without a lot of uh, experience and stuff. So I, I think that's cool. I mean, whatever you can negotiate to get to get it working, and, and it worked. Obviously, you guys refinanced yeah, yeah, yeah. it. And- well, the irony is, uh, the first guy went broke, and we bought his shares out. And yeah. so the two of us have been partners uh, for the last, I don't know, 10, 12 years without him. And now my other partner's getting ready to retire. And so we're working out a buyout plan right now that will probably culminate the end of this year. And so uh, here I am the least ex- experienced, and yet I'm the one carrying on and, and moving forward. So nice. that, that's kind of fun. That's yeah. great. So That's great. Yeah. So I, my question is about partnerships. You know, like we talk a lot about that. They're a very popular topic. Uh, so... Maybe I can just ask you some general questions about your partnership. First of all, I mean, what makes a good partner in your in your mind? I think guys that have a common value system, uh, if you're not headed the same direction, you're going to struggle. Hmm. And I think the three of us uh, that started together had a lot of that. And uh, with the one partner, you know, we've been together for 24 years. Oh, wow. and we're still friends. <laughs> and so, <laughs> nice. uh, but there have been some ups and downs. You know, we've had moments of disagreements. Uh, uh, but we each play our role and defer to one another, and uh, that's that's been pretty helpful. Yeah, yeah. What the the rocky times? What what usually leads to that? For, at least in your experience, expectations. Okay. You know, one guy comes with a certain set of expectations, and they're not lining up with somebody else's. Yeah. And so, be that financial, be that workload, um, you know, whatever it is. Um, you know, when those things don't congeal together, then there's going to be uh, some issues between you that got to be talked out. Yeah. Is there is there a way to avoid that up front? Well, some of it, I suppose. I mean, a, a good partnership agreement helps to define what those responsibilities are. But as you move forward, you find, uh, at least in our case, because we, we started out together as really rank amateurs and uh, not really knowing, like they say, we didn't know what we didn't know. Right. And and so we grew together with some of those things. And as that developed, I don't know that a partnership agreement would have resolved everything, but certainly it, it does define what your specific roles are. And that's important. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Now, so do you do all your deals with this partner or do you do anything on your own? Uh, the greatest majority of my properties are in this partnership. Okay. I have two other partnerships and then I do have some of my own property. Okay. The other, the other partnerships are pretty minor. Okay. So can we go back a little bit? And, and I think we definitely want to get back to partnerships again. But what kind of properties have you invested in? Uh, just about everything. We started with a fourplex. We sold that, moved up to a sixplex, which was three duplexes on one parcel. We added two more duplexes. And then we sold those out and bought new construction down in our own area. So we have single family homes. We have duplexes. We have some uh, townhomes basically duplexes, but they're separate parcels on each side. We bought uh, several of those when the market was really skyrocketing in 2003, 2004. And after accumulating some of those, we sold off a portion of those in order to buy mixed-use property uh, out in Shelton, which is 38 apartments. And then it has some retail 
uh, office on the first floor in a restaurant space. Nice. We, we kept that for a year, two years, refinanced it, took cash out of that and bought 24 units, all two bedroom, one bath units. And wow. so, uh, so a little bit of everything, a little bit yeah. of commercial, not so much that, mostly residential, single what? family as well as apartments. And was there a plan? Was, was there, hey, we're going to you know, catapult one to the next, the next, the next? Or, or you know, was it, hey, let's just find the next deal, figure out if it looks good regardless of what it is and kind of go from there? I mean, you didn't have a, hey, we want to step up, step up, step up plan or did you? Or- Originally, no. Uh, I mean, when I say we started as rank amateurs, I really did. Yeah. Uh, the realtor we were working with, a uh, great guy, I love him to, uh, still today. They moved off to some warm place down in Florida, nice. uh, <laughs> the opposite side of the world from us. But uh, didn't get a lot of education from him or from from a real estate. I learned about landlording, didn't learn about real estate. And so I got to a point where I was looking at my own self saying, okay, if I was to retire today on today's dollars, what would I need? Okay, I had half of 10 units, so I had five units. What else did I need? And I decided, well, if I had two more duplexes, I, we'd be all right. And so I went looking for them. Gotcha. And uh, I found a gal who had some incredible expertise in real estate, in marketing. She had experience as a landlord. Her husband was a builder. And so she had all these dynamics coming together. And when we sat down and talked with her, we began to realize there's a bigger picture here and we're yeah. really missing out. Yeah. So, so your initial goal, it seems then, was to aim for retirement. I mean, you were getting yeah. into re- real estate with the purpose of going for retirement. Exactly. Okay. As a pastor, I had opted out of Social Security. Okay. And so I didn't have that to fall back on other than my non-ministerial activities. And so that's pretty minimal. So I'm looking for other ways to say, okay, how can I care for my, my family uh, down the road? Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. And I, and I think that's important too, because I mean, nobody knows what it's going to be like, but there's a good possibility we won't have social security when I'm, you know, that <laughs> age either. Like a lot of people our age might not have it either. So I, I think that's a good way for everyone to look at it today. I mean, if it's there, it'll be icing mm-hmm. on the cake someday. But I, I kind of take the assumption that I will never get social security because it'll <laughs> yeah. be bankrupt before then. And, you know, maybe they'll fix it, but I don't know. So anyway, I think that's, that's a cool way of looking at it. Uh, so I, I want to ask just so people have an idea. Shelton, you mentioned Shelton. That's where you live. Now, I know where that is, obviously, because I'm yeah. from out here. But for those people um, who don't. That's in the middle of nowhere, I'm guessing. I'm, yeah. Well, know, here's the deal. Is that Shelton, Podunk, Washington? Is that what that is? No, that's where Brandon's from. Right. Okay. okay. <laughs> but, but it's right next door. Okay. <laughs> next to I live Podunk. In, I, I live in Olympia. That's the state capital. Okay. Shelton's 20 minutes from me, right off of I-5. I-5 hits from Vancouver, Canada to Mexico. Yep. And when we were trying to refinance this thing last year, I had banks literally tell me it's too far off of I-5. And I said, well, it's 20 minutes. And they would say, yeah, but it's a long 20 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. That's exactly how I think about Shelton. I'm like, it's only a half hour drive from my house, but it's a long half hour drive. There you go. Interesting. Interesting. Well, the reason I I bring that up is because I like – I guess I want to know like pricing in that area because, again, Olympia is very, very expensive um, compared at least to Grace Harbor. Uh, Maybe not compared to a lot of places. But, you know, how does Shelton compare with Olympia, more of a busy, uh, more expensive area? Well, yeah, definitely. It's a a smaller market. I mean, the town of Shelton is probably eight or nine thousand people proper. Um, You got over a hundred thousand in Olympia, Lacey, Tumwater. So, it's a bedroom community. It's a retirement community. A lot of low income. 
it was hit big with the timber industry years ago when that went in major decline. So, yeah, it doesn't have the draw, the attraction out there. But uh, this being a commercial property still has has some value, and we've been able to increase value in it. Okay. Nice. Okay. Nice. So, so you started with multis. I mean, you you just hopped right in. Obviously, you know, there's a whole story behind it, as we discussed, and really kind of went from there. It sounds like you didn't really ever go back to single family. It sounds like you pretty much stayed with the multis, unless I'm getting it wrong. Yeah, when we made the transition from our original properties uh, up in the Tacoma area, that Brandon would be familiar with, when we bought our new construction, we had a mix of single family and duplexes. Okay. And then, see, that's 2003, 2004. Literally within nine months of buying some of those, we were refinancing because okay. the market was growing so fast. And so we took money out, bought more duplexes and single families. With By 2006, we sold about half a dozen or more of those and bought the multifamily. But your purpose has always been cash flow, right? I mean, you're, you're buying this for cash flow. You're not flipping houses. You're not wholesaling. You're, you're doing buy and hold, correct? By and large, yes. Okay. I, I've always had the mentality. I wanted to do some flipping. But I buy something and then I fix it and I keep it and I rent it and nice. you know so yeah <laughs> yep and of, so of of the different asset classes the multis the new construction the townhomes the mixed use which has been your favorite and why oh for different reasons I, I got a little house that's just been a a real fun house I'd love to tell you about that in a minute uh, my preference is to have the multifamilies larger multifamilies okay uh, and if I could trade all my smallers into larger ones I would probably do that the reason being is it's it's consolidated. Um, I, I have more control over the value as I control the rents and expenses and uh, for management purposes and so forth. I think uh, I, I would like to see, and, and this has been changing even in the last few months has been doing some reading and even on the, uh, on the forums uh, getting some input. You know, I, I had this mentality, I need a 150, 200 unit complex. And as I've done a little reading, I'm thinking, okay, maybe more in the 50 to 75 units, two or three or four of those. Yeah. Instead of yeah. one single. And so, uh, you know, I'm still developing and growing in my thinking about uh, where I want to be. Gotcha. Gotcha. I'm, I'm curious. I, I want to hear about that, that single family, but I'm going to ask you a couple more houses. So somebody hold on to that thought. Um, first, do you have in-house management, I'm assuming, on the big multis? Uh, only on the Shelton unit because it's out there and the design of that property is kind of like a dorm. Okay. It's all interior um, studio and one bedroom units. And so we do have a live-in uh, manager there who takes care of just everything. She does a fantastic job out there. Okay. I did have management on the 24 unit when I was working full-time. Yeah. And the uh, problem was I had five empty units. Uh, and wasn't getting them filled. And so when I left my position, we let her go. And uh, now I usually only have one or two empty and things are running a lot smoother. So gotcha. How many do you have right now, total units then? Uh, about 85. Okay. okay. So uh, uh, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Well, this, oh, at no. some point of the show, I want to talk about how you do that. Because, I mean, I have, you know, half that and I go crazy. Like my wife works full time and I go crazy with the, with the. So I want to know how you do that. And we'll talk about that maybe in a little bit. But Josh, did you have something or? I, well, you know, he had mentioned going with the three smaller, well, you know, 60, 80, whatever uh, units versus, you know, a 300 unit. Why, why would that be an approach that would be preferable? I'm, I'm just curious, you know, what, what were people on the forum saying and, and. You know, I guess for the listeners, why does that make sense for you? Well, later on, you're going to ask about books, and one of those is Marketopoly. <laughs> and uh, uh, it, he had some interesting ideas about some of that and uh, some of the other reading. Just 
uh, liquidity of a smaller complex versus a really big one okay. is one big issue. And then just diversification. Okay. Okay. So primarily those two things. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Brandon, I know you had a... Yeah. So I, I just am curious. I mean, like, do you have any... I mean, how do you do it? What do you do? Do you still show units yourself? Are you doing repairs yourself? What all do you do and what don't you do? I do everything I like to do. Okay. <laughs> That's a good <laughs> That's answer. What, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, um, I do most everything. You got to understand that with our houses and townhomes, those are mostly new and like new. Yeah. So I have very little maintenance. I have a higher uh, quality tenant. I got professional people, state office workers, so forth. And so I, I don't have to babysit those. Uh, I get a call occasionally uh, when somebody moves. Obviously, you're going to do some turnover. And so um, that's not a big deal. Uh, the apartments, I've got a little lower uh, class clientele. I do have Section 8. We put about 30% Section 8 in those. Uh, I have a couple of other situations, community use services that we've given a couple units to and some of that kind of subsidy. But, uh, you know, it, it, some of it's mentality, it's uh, tolerance, it's ability and interest and how I interact with people. And uh, by and large, I don't find it a big burden. That's nice. nice. Yeah, I, I, and I think... I think a lot of it is I feel like most of mine are like your Shelton property, probably, you know, like they're all one bedroom yeah. studios. Like I got some <laughs> yeah. two bedrooms in there, yeah. you know, they're, they're very management intensive. So I, de- yeah, yeah. Josh play the violin. <laughs> so I like, Oh, I like what you did, right? Like you, you, as you like grew, at least it sounds like you got higher quality. I mean, I don't know what your original fourplex was like, but it sounds like you diversified into some nice, nice. No, we were, we, we were, uh, we were having drug busts and all that. Yeah, okay. There. Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> so, always fun. So you, <laughs> as well, yeah. I, I tell people, I, I've seen, I think I've seen almost everything. And then next week something else happens, but yeah. you know, I've got the hoarders that should be on TV. We've had drug <laughs> addicts. Yeah. We've had prostitutes. We've had gun running, meth labs, suicide attempts. I've Way had to people... go, pastor. <laughs> <laughs> nice. We, we try to work with them, you know. <laughs> best and brightest tenants, don't you? Yeah, we, we work with them all, you know. But, yeah. you know, sometimes we have bad days, too. And so... Because <laughs> <laughs> a prostitute is not a bad day. No, no. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Okay. So, so you, you, okay. So you are at least getting higher quality just to bring us back in. You're getting, I mean, as you grow throughout your investing kind of career, and I like the the fact that earlier you said you're still developing, you're still growing. Yeah. Right. Like, I love that. Like, I don't know. I I feel like I don't hear that. Like we hear it on bigger pockets, but so many people in the world that like, they have this, like, I'm, I've reached it. You're right. Like I'm there Uh, mentality, especially with guys who are teaching and talking like, you know, I've made it. Well, I, yeah, I was surprised when you called me. I mean, I'm not a professional. <laughs> well, I guess I am technically, but I, I'm not a realtor, never have been, never thought I wanted to be, still not sure I would want to be, but uh, I've just done it. It's been a part of my life and, and developed a, a love. Yeah. Well, according cool. to the IRS, you probably are a professional, right? I put more than the whatever it is, 700 hours. So yeah, I could probably claim it. <laughs> so you are definitely a professional. You are indeed. Well, yeah, that, that's good. And, and, you know, one of the things for us is this, you know, for those of you guys who are listening, I, I don't think we've ever actually talked about our philosophy. And I know it's kind of kind of cut out a little bit of your time, but I'll do it really quickly on who we want to bring on to the show. We want to bring We don't want to bring on some guy that everybody looks up and is like, oh, okay, I can't even imagine getting to that point. You know, we want to bring on, uh, we want to talk to somebody who just did their first deal to, to somebody like you who's got 80 units, to somebody who's got hundreds or thousands. And our, our goal is to really help people understand how they built their business, how they grew. And I don't think there's been a show, you, you know, you, you can tell me if there has been, where, where 
I haven't learned something where you, you know, there's always a takeaway, no matter how experienced you right. are. And, and that's what we try to do. We, we, we think anybody and everybody we want to talk to can, can share something that anybody and everybody can learn from. And frankly, if you were the guy who said, I know everything, there's not a chance in hell I'm going to bring you on my show. <laughs> we don't want to interview you if you're doing, if that, if that's your mindset, because, you know, we want people who don't think they know it all. Cause I don't think anybody does. Right. So anyway, yeah. um, all right, well, let's, let's hop back to, to partners. You know, we, we talked about what makes a good partner. Why, why partner? I mean, at this point, it seems that you're probably fairly successful. You've, you've probably done pretty well for yourself, uh, in the real estate world. Why do you continue to bring on partners versus going at it alone? That's a great question because I was asked that this morning. I actually had a had had coffee with a, a BP guy from nice. up in Seattle. Came he told me to ask you that question. <laughs> <laughs> he asked me if I'd partner with him, and 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 I smiled at him and I said no. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm at a stage where I'm moving out of partnerships because yeah. I'm at a point where I don't need them, and uh, maybe it's because I'm too controlling and whatnot. And you know, part of part of the reason a partnership works is because one guy can say this is the way it's going to be, and everybody else says, "Yeah, okay." Yeah. Uh, and I was kind of that guy. Nice. So, yeah, I, I am. I'm phasing out of partnerships at this point, and I, I have a partnership with my son. I have a partnership with another really good friend, and that's it. Other than this major one that we're going to be buying out of uh, probably by the end of this year. Nice, yes. nice. Uh, so I'm I'm going to interrupt the whole flow that we had here because you mentioned your son, mm-hmm. and. I have been told that you've got a 15-year-old, and I've also been told that not only do you have a 15-year-old, but you have a 15-year-old who's actually done a real estate deal. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, we, we got to hear about that. Well, he's not 15 anymore, but that just means the story has developed and, and gotten better. Uh, I, I told both of my boys when they were young, I said, uh, you know, they'd watched us grow up with these properties, and they've seen some of the benefit, and so uh, they want to buy property, you know, and the kids want to imitate the parents, and so... I said, when you get the money for closing costs, we'll go look for a deal. And so uh, both of my boys ran businesses. One had a bounce house that he rented uh, to parties and events. And the other, how old was he when he had a bounce house business? Oh, I think he was probably 12 when he started. (laughs) Wow. uh, he, He did that until he went away to college and we sold it and... You know, he went on to other things, but wow. uh, he, he's now studying to be a doctor. But uh, my younger boy, he started mowing lawns when he was about nine. He had a lady in the church that'd give him seven bucks and a candy bar. And uh, <laughs> nice. and that was his start. And we went down to, you know, the big box store and he bought a lawnmower on 90 days, same as cash and uh, had it paid off in two months and and uh, mowed for the neighbors and wherever he could. He got a, a contract with one of the developments that we had to do the homeowners association. Wow. They found out he was only, I think, maybe eleven at the time, and they fired him. <laughs> and uh, so he was. That's kind age of discrimination. Absolutely. Uh, but we learned some stuff about contracting. We learned that a kid uh, under eighteen can't sign a contract unless he owns a partnership or a business or corporation. Oh, interesting. And so as they got a little older, he did. Uh, Saved up his money, and uh, he had all his closing costs down. Guy that used to do my computer work, they were selling their house. His wife had gotten an inheritance. They paid off that house and put money down on another one. And But the house needed some work, and they weren't suited to do the work, trust me. And uh, he was good with computers, not other things in life. Nice. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> uh, I said, well, you know, have you thought about carrying a contract? And they just kind of stared at me and said, what's that mean? And I said, well, you become the bank. And they said, well, we don't have any money. 
I says, no, your house is the money. Yeah. And so uh, I just took out, you know, the the yellow pad and started writing away. I said, well, here here's a possibility. Here's your value and here's an interest rate and here's what we'd pay you. And, you know, in three years we refinance it or sell it and you get all your money. And we came back again a couple of days later and kind of spelled it out more specifically. And they said, yeah, we, we'd like to do that. So uh, we had this two-bedroom, one-bath bungalow, 720 square feet. And uh, we agreed on $150,000 for it. And uh, we moved in the week before closing and started renovating, tearing out the ugly carpets and painting the pink walls and everything. And uh, we stuck it on Craigslist, and I got slammed with calls. Mm-hmm. We had the thing rented in a day. Wow. And so it, this was a 1925 home that had been put on this lot in the 1950s. And they put it on, an, on a, a full basement that had its own entrance from the back. Are you saying they actually physically moved this 1920s home onto the exactly. lot where there was a basement already existing? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And so as we're walking away from the home for the first time, my son looks at me and he says, Dad, look, look over there. I says, yeah, what about it? See that door? That's another unit. Wow. <laughs> this is at fi- and this was at 15. Yeah, exactly. Sharp kid. And so uh, we spent the next year uh, working on the basement together. Uh, we had a framer come in and framed it out for us. And then uh, we strung wires and plumbing and all the different things in there. And we got it ready. And uh, we got the basement rented out in addition to the upstairs as two separate units. Kind of nice. unofficial. Uh, now we've got two people that are related to each other in there. It's working out great. And uh, so over the years, uh, three years went by. We got into the downturn of the the economy. We were supposed to pay them off. I sat down with them and I said, well, you see what the market's doing. It's it's not worth what we even paid for it. Um, you know, you can take it back or you can extend the note. Well, they, they didn't want to take it back. Yeah. I said, yeah, we'll, we'll extend the note. I said, I really want to go out five years this time. And uh, but we're gonna instead of paying you interest only, we'll we'll pay you a full amortized payment. So we went from like five hundred to seven fifty. They were excited about that. Yeah. Well, unfortunately for them, a year later they they split. Oh. And so now they want their money so that they can go their separate ways. And so I said, well, you know, we still don't have the value in it. And uh, I'm talking to brokers, mortgage brokers, and so forth, and we can get about one hundred and twenty for it. So if you want to apply all the payments that we've made to you towards principal, basically do a discounted payment, we can get you 120. And they jumped all over it. They were excited. It worked great for them. So uh, this time Riley got it financed in his own name and because uh, he was old enough at this point. And uh, he got 30 years at 3.75. His full principal interest tax insurance payment was less than we were paying before hmm. with just just the mortgage payment. And so uh, with the income that's come off of that, we put a new roof on it. Just this week, we finished reciting it. Next summer, we plan to put a garage on it. And, uh, you know, it's gone up to about 180,000, value today. Wow. And, uh, so it's, it's been a very fun house. Yeah. So, so how, do you, uh, how do you do that? I mean, not the house part, but how do you get your kids to be financially wise? How, how do, you know, I, I've got a couple little girls and, and – I definitely want to train them to be entrepreneurs as well, and yeah. um, I, you know, I, I'm sure there's lots of people listening who who are in the same place. So, what what did you do? How did how'd you get your kid mowing lawns? How'd you get your kid, you know, doing all this, you know, bounce house business and everything else? 
Well, our, our home has been a home of entrepreneurs. My wife is in direct sales and does very well with that. And so they've grown up seeing us with the properties. They've seen her busy with her stuff and, you know, my activities in the church and so forth. And so they've grown up watching these things take place. We talk about money in our home. Uh, yeah. I never I never hid things from them. They knew how much our mortgage payment was. They knew how much money I brought home. It was never a secret. As they got older and Rich Dad came out with his stuff, I got them Rich Dad for teens and made them endure that. And, uh, you know, they learned from that. And uh, they, they developed uh, a desire and a mentality that said, we can do something. We never told our kids no unless we really meant it. Yeah, yeah. And so if they said, hey, can I go do this? Well, yeah, you can, Yeah, but there might be some costs and consequences. So consider this. And so, you know, when they're paving the street out front, they ran out there with the, uh, the lemonade stand with hot dogs and chips. Nice. <laughs> yeah, smart. No. smart. And so uh, it just kind of grew for them. And yeah. uh, being open about what they could do and giving them permission to do things that weren't necessarily standard, yeah. but uh, didn't have a reason to say no. Yeah. When I'm driving them around mowing lawns or taking them to do a, a bounce house rental, I made them do the interaction with the, the client and uh, that helped them grow and mature and get experience in those areas in a, in a, you know, a controlled environment. And so they grow up with some confidence that way. That's awesome. That really is amazing. And, and you know, I, I know I came from a family of entrepreneurs and my family came from a family of, entre- you know, and it, it's kind yeah. of, you know, brought itself down. I wonder how much of a challenge it is for somebody who was not raised in, in such an environment. And so I, I think a lot of the feedback that you gave just now was, was really, really you know, priceless in, in terms of what you can do. I guess for, for anyone listening who may not have the entrepreneurial background, do you have any other tips that you think might be helpful? Oh, I, I think uh, developing relationships with your kids you know, outside of even the home in, in that business environment really helped a lot. When I'm driving my kids to, to their activities, we're talking about how it's going to work and we're talking about other things about life. And so, you know, my kids, uh, I, I can brag about them. They never really rebelled in, in the classical sense. And I think because it was those interactions and giving them a purpose, I, I would say graciously that I thought one of my boys was either going to be a great success or in jail. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice. Because he was so aggressive and he was, you know, we had to stay ahead of that and, and we had to give him purpose and direction and creating a positive direction for him where he benefited from it as well as benefiting other people in the process, I think really helped him. That's fantastic. That's At, really, really great. Look, I, what age do you think is appropriate to start, you know, that train? I mean, is it from the time they're a baby? I mean, like, uh, would you wait till they're 10? I mean, where, where do you begin that process? Well, my youngest son, both my boys played t-ball and, you know, they had to sell candy bars. And everybody hates selling candy bars, but uh, there was a bike to be earned. And so my younger boy, he walks up to the lady and he says, now that bike that we're going to win, if we sell 10 boxes, is it a new bike? <laughs> it was an eight. It was I, an eight. I, I was a youth pastor. I didn't have big income. We shopped at the garage sales and whatever, you know? Yeah. And so uh, he saw that new bike and he had a, he had a goal. And my boys never saw obstacles. They just saw the goals. And the obstacles, you just work your way through them and you get to the goal. And so he stood out in front of Safeway for eight hours at a stretch. And when my wife would say, are you tired? He'd say, how many boxes are left? Nice. Nice. (laughs) That's cool. And so, uh, you know, giving them goals, giving them purpose, something that they're going to benefit and win with. Yeah. And you you know what? 
I think that applies to adults as well. You know, a Absolutely. lot of a lot of people find that they they have a hard time motivating themselves. They have a hard time getting themselves work. You know, people look at me. I, you know, in the past ten years, I've worked more than most people uh, would would dare to say they've worked. <laughs> probably, probably more. How many now. days off have you had now, Josh? In the last in, eight years? in the last eight years, I've taken a single day off. One day off. I've Shame worked every on you. every Shame other on day. Yep. With the birth of my kids. You name it. Well, I have a goal. Though. <laughs> you know, and for me. You know, yes, I need I need a little bit a little bit of time off. But you'll like, find out how much more efficient you are when oh, you come yeah. back refreshed. I'm, I, I no, I don't disagree with you. I don't disagree with you. But I mean, I you know, for me, I love I love I love what I'm doing, and I have yeah. a goal, and my goal is getting closer and closer and closer. And for me, it's like I I'm the I'm that personality type. I can't stop yeah. until I get there. And and you know, my brain is always going. I'm always thinking. And so you know, I. I've been thinking about it. I'm like, hey, uh, you know, I'm going to go take a week off and go somewhere. And then I was talking to somebody last night and I was like, wait a second. I'm going to thaw, quote unquote, thaw. The entire time I'm thawing, my brain is just going to be going. The clearer I get from this thaw, the more I'm going to be thinking about the goal. And so even when I'm off, I'm never off. I can't shut it off. And and I think most entrepreneurs, and I think the same applies to real estate investors. You know, you go take a day off. It's not a day off. You're, you're still thinking about your portfolio or, you know, you, you're on vacation and you look at a condo. Oh, that might be a good <laughs> rental. Let's go, let's oh, go yeah. Airbnb that sucker. <laughs> I mean, you're not, come on, come on. Oh yeah. We, we look at properties all over the, the world, wherever we go. And uh, we always dream and imagine what if we own this? What if we own that? How much would it take to do that? And yeah. it, it's a fun pastime, but right. uh Yeah. But the, anyway, bottom line is the motivations, it's either in you or it's, or it's not. And if it's not, then you got to find a way to build it and, you know, right. creating a goal, you know, whether you've got the job and saying, Hey, I want to be able to get out of my job. That's your goal. Or I want to make X amount of dollars or X a month, you know, whatever it is. If you're listening to the show and you don't have the motivation, create that goal, figure out what it is, maybe make it, you know, easy or, you know, attainable at first so that you're not you know, uh, disappointed. And, and then once mm-hmm. you see that you can do that, uh, you kind of extend it and extend it. And we, we do this all the time at bigger pockets, Brandon and I, it's funny. I mean, the goals that we have are, are ridiculous. You know, sometimes we <laughs> set our goals so high that when we actually make, uh, achieve those goals, you know, we look at it, we're like, Oh man, that was kind of disappointing. Yeah. I'd be really, you know, why, why didn't we triple that? Yeah. Why didn't we set a higher goal? And, and so, but creating those wins for you and the staff and whoever that motivates you forward. Absolutely, and, and, and you gotta you gotta get a few wins under your belt and experience Absolutely. that to to excel. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, so that's great about your son. It's fascinating, and and hopefully everybody listening also thinks it is. I I think you know getting your kids and and really training them to become financially smart uh, beyond just real estate too um, is is really important. Um, I, I was a teacher for four years, and one of the things that I did outside of my curriculum was financial education to the kids. I, I thought it was extremely important. I realized that when I had gotten to college and into the real world, I didn't have any. And, right. and I had to teach it to myself. And so uh, we, we really uh, do need to work harder to do that stuff uh, for, for our children, I think. Um, I, I'd like you to jump back. You talked about this fun story on the single family house. Can, can you uh, dig in on that a little bit? What more do you want to know? Well, you <laughs> said was that, it was fun. Oh, was, was that the, the same the story? Your son? 
Yeah. Oh. Yeah. oh. oh. oh we yeah. covered it and I didn't even know well, it. Well, well, that well, was the beauty, fun. The, the beauty of that is it's growing and appreciating, so he's now looking at getting a HELOC on it so he can go get another one. That's cool. That's very cool. Yeah. Hey, for those people who don't know what that is, because I'm a big fan of those, <laughs> what is a HELOC? That's a home equity line of credit, and some places will do them on non-owner. Yeah, and, and what does that mean? I mean, like for somebody who wants to use one, why, why is that helpful? Why would we want to do that? It's cash in your pocket ready for another down payment. Well, how does it work exactly? So you've got a property, explain the property. Yeah, okay, so you go to the bank and you say, I want to get, it's basically a second, but it's a line of credit. So uh, it's money that you can take as you need it. You can pay it back, take it again, take, pay it back. And you might have 10-year draw period where you can use that money back and forth and then uh, usually maybe a 10-year payback period after that. And during that draw period, you're only required to make uh, interest-only payments. Uh, in our case, we try to pay it back as quick as we can so we've got that money available to go put into something else. But it gives you flexibility as opposed to a straight second where you're amortized over uh, a set number of years. Do those interest rates look similar to uh, uh, conforming rates on mortgage? Uh, pretty close. They're going to be typically a little bit higher. I've had my... Uh, line of credit for about six or seven years. I'm running about 5%. Okay. okay. And I've seen some a little lower currently, four and a quarter-ish. Yeah. Nice. I, nice. I know a friend of mine has a uh, a line of credit that, I mean, but instead of a home equity line of credit, like on one property, what he did is he went to the bank and said, I've got these, you know, eight properties, each one with a pretty significant chunk of equity. Uh, can mm-hmm. we just do one big? And he got, I think it was $550,000 line of credit from the bank. And, wow. Nice. And they were just like, doing a ton of stuff. I mean, new construction, they could finance anything they wanted to. Oh, I mean, yeah. out in Grace Harbor, that goes a long way, right? Like <laughs> you can buy half the town. And so, yeah, they were doing a lot of stuff. And I think they still have it. I don't know, you know, if the banks that were, you know, are still as generous, but you know, he just, he had the equity in a, a lot of different properties. So he just combined yeah. them together and got a blanket, a blanket line of credit. I, I'm trying to temper my, my son right now. Cause they do typically tend to value the homes a little more conservatively on those. And so you say, well, it's worth 180000 They're going to say, yeah, but we think you're worth 170 yeah. So they're not necessarily going to give you everything that's there. Yeah. Gotcha. And the, the danger of those, I mean, in, a, in its very basic sense, it's almost like a gigantic credit card that exactly. if you don't pay it, you lose a property. And so they're, they are very dangerous things. And I, mm-hmm. But I, I think the key is like what you guys are doing is you're buying further assets with that, with that liability mm-hmm. essentially. So it kind of like cancels right. out the evil of it and makes it better, hopefully. Um, well, and you got to calculate the total cost of capital in that so that those costs are included in whatever you're going to receive from your new property. Yeah. You know, my in-laws recently, um, a couple of years ago, they bought a, there was a duplex they wanted to buy and they own their house free and clear. Duplex came up on the market and they wanted it. But uh, the way that they worked it, ended up doing it is they went to the bank, got a home equity line of credit on their own home, not on the on the rental house, and then went out right. and bought the duplex with just that money. So they did the entire deal with no money down. Cause you know, if they would have gone, the, gone and got a mortgage on that property, they would have been required to put down 20, 25%. But when they use their own property, the equity to cover it, they did the entire deal, nothing out of pocket whatsoever. And uh, now they can go and refinance that property if they want to pull out the cash and do it again and again and again. It's just, it's a very cool strategy of, uh, yeah. of getting in there creatively. So nice. very cool. Yeah. Okay. Um, how about, uh, Let's talk about creative investing. We've been talking a lot about that lately. You know, with my new book that came out, we've been talking, you know, it's kind of been a big... Oh, man. Yeah, I got to so, play. You, do you see how I... Do you see how I slid that in there? Biggerpockets.com slash no money. Check no, it out. That, that shameless, was shameless. shameless. By the way, this is show 95 of the Bigger Pockets podcast. Check out the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash show 95. Thank you. 
All right, nice. All right, so I guess I want to know uh, creative creative finance. Is there anything in that in your career? I mean, we talked about the very first deal that you didn't have any money. Have you ever done anything like that since, or do you have any other like creative techniques that you've used ever to buy real estate? Well, most of them have been, you know, standard bank financing. But like what you just talked about, when the market was moving up, we were refinancing homes, taking seconds, taking cash out, uh, lines of credit out of existing properties in order to to buy additional properties. So we've done a number of those. Uh, we've done a couple of the uh, uh, owner finance ones. Uh, we've done it where we'll get a owner to carry back a portion when we bought uh, the twenty four unit. The owner carried back a hundred grand. And uh, so uh, standard bank commercial financing, but with an owner carry back on that so that uh, that minimized how much we had to come out of pocket. Okay. Uh, how, how much did you have to come out of pocket and how much was the property? Uh, the 24 unit was just over $2 million. Okay. And uh, so it seems like we were bringing around 400 some thousand plus the carry back. And that was pulled out of the other commercial Yeah, when we refied that. So what they carried a hundred, so it was four hundred plus plus the five, the hundred for five. So you still, I mean, you still had to put money down. They weren't yeah. financing the property right. for you. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's a pretty common strategy, isn't it? On commercial property, is getting some kind of cash back at least from the uh, from the seller. I think so. That is pretty typical, and you know, you're, you're dealing with a lot of money, and and either you don't have it or you've got it tied up. So if if a commercial guy is not willing to to pitch in and help out, it's going to make making a deal a little tougher. Yeah, yeah. That, that makes sense. That makes sense. So uh, you went from one property to the next, and you, you kind of were I, I forget what 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 it's called. My brain is a little fried here, but getting getting rid of one property, picking up the next one. You know, sizing <laughs> up. I know there's a word and it's escaping me, but that's okay. Were you uh, doing a 1031 on on these properties? Were you exchanging them? Most of the time, okay. uh, not always. We would kind of balance out what the advantage was to have a higher uh, basis or if it was better to just transfer the property on up. And if it didn't affect us tax-wise, we would take the hit right then. And uh, But you need an accountant at that point to decide uh, how much of this should be pushed forward because you're you're building massive equity when you do that and your basis goes all the way back to those first properties. Yeah. And so... Uh, um, we tried to balance whether or not there was a tax advantage or how heavy the hit was in a given year. Okay. Uh, so in other words, case. yeah, talk to a talk to a CPA if you're going to do that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Nice. Can Hopefully you can you explain really quickly what is a, a 1031 for those people who may not know? Uh, 1031 is a tax deferred exchange where you're taking income property and exchanging it for income property. It's like kind exchange, and so uh, there's a lot of rules that regulate that. I think you have to have more debt when you finish than you had in the beginning and so forth. Uh, there's some, some rules about all of that kind of thing, but uh, that you, you can carry your, your basis and your property forward so that basically you're never paying capital gains uh, until the day you die and pass it on to your heirs and keep rolling. Nice, nice. <laughs> There you go, kids. Here's the big fat tax bill. Well, I know there are ways to like, even at that point, I, I like, I don't know what they are, but I know there's ways to, to, to move that money that, you know, the rules that the rich people know that we have, you know, we're still learning. So I know, uh, I know Amanda Hahn mentioned that back forever ago when she was on the podcast and she's a CPA. So, uh, cool. Um, well, I want to talk about the mixed use property. Uh, because yeah. yeah, we, I mean, I don't think we've had anybody on the nope. show that like we've talked about the mixed use. So uh, I think it's been talked about in passing, but yeah, but never, never like a, yes. detail, yeah. So let's dive into that. I mean, first of all, 
What does that mean, mixed use? Uh, basically, it means that the property has multiple primary uses. So in our case, we have residential use and we have commercial use. We have retail, office, and restaurant uh, together with the uh, residential upstairs. So uh, we've got a mix of, of purposes. And what's attractive about that? Well, I, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, mean, yeah, I, I think they're cool. I would, I would love to have uh, you know, some mixed-use property. I, I, I just think they're cool. But like, you know, outside when, when of the, that. When the market tanks and businesses hurt, then the mixed-use can hurt. Yeah. Uh, now, we've got some smaller offices, 500 square feet. We've got uh, nail salon and hair salon, and those are like seven, 800 square feet. And I, I can get those read at almost any time you know, as needed. But when you get bigger, uh, the restaurant's over 3,500 square feet, probably the biggest restaurant space in Shelton, I'm thinking. And uh, we've been empty for a while, yeah. a long while. And uh, people are intimidated by it. We'll make them a great deal. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, we, we've looked at a lot of options. The city limits some of what we can do. And so uh, larger commercial uh, you know, requires somebody who can come in and, and support it with their business. Yeah. And so uh, – that's a liability in some cases. So, so that's definitely a, a challenge. Are there any other challenges that kind of come along with mixed use? Oh, making sure that your uses complement one another. Uh, the restaurant that we had initially, they wanted to build out a lounge, and we had to put some limits on them time-wise, and they wanted to have some live music, but uh, we've got residents right above them. And so yeah. we said, you know, it's got to be acoustic. It can't be after whatever time in the evening. And so some different things so that – the one use doesn't uh, yeah. detract from the other. So you don't want like a machine shop underneath <laughs> yeah. your apartment. There you go. Yeah. Nice. Say, so how do you, how do you advertise a rental in a commercial space like that? Like if I, if, how are you looking for tenants to take those, whether it's the, the, the small ones or the big ones for the commercial side? Yeah. Um, Craigslist, like everybody else, okay. uh, I put a sign in the front window, uh, for the restaurant. I have a, a realtor working with us as well. And so, yeah, every way we can. Okay. So it do sounds you, pretty do standard. You, do, now, do you find in terms of renting out the apartments that there's anything different about uh, renting out a mixed-use apartment in a mixed-use complex versus a, uh, a house or a, just a regular apartment building? Uh, not really. It, it's subject to that property and the, the needs and interests of people. And so we're downtown. We're in the core of, this, of the town. Yeah, uh, we're on the corner of Highway Three and Railroad, which is the two main roads in town. Nice. Uh, we are studio and one bedroom, so we have a little bit more of a uh, transient population. They'll come in for a year or six months and then move on. Or, but we've got a pretty good arrangement in there with our management, so people have a sense that they're at home there. So, yeah, uh, we've developed a, a living room space, a common area. And so they can come down and watch ball games together or they can have a pizza feed or nice. they, cool. they, they get together and do holiday dinners and that kind of thing. Or we've got a little park area in the back. So they'll do barbecues in the summer. And oh, nice. So that's, oh, cool. that's great. Yeah. I was going yeah. to say, it's cool to kind of develop that community. Like, do you feel like you did that on purpose or did that just kind of happen because of the manager you have in there? I think it happened because of the manager. But if I was to do it again, I'd be looking for that kind of manager. Yeah. I'm just so thinking, you, yeah. Go, oh, go ahead. Well, I'm I, just thinking I, I got my, you know, sorry, 20, you know, my 24 unit. I'm like, man, the, the, I never see the tenants do things together. But if I could like cultivate that sort of, 
And I remember when I bought the place, I used to think, oh, yeah, we should have like Fourth of July parties outside. And then I realized <laughs> I don't want to be in that area on the Fourth of July. You know, like, <laughs> like I, I want to go hang out with my family. We're, we're always we're always being invited out there and sometimes we'll show up, you yeah. know, and uh, it's good to do. Do you yeah. think that the that sense of community attracts a better type of tenant? Does it does it make any kind of difference, or do, is it just kind of a feel good thing that doesn't really add any value to your bottom line? Um, and meaning, you know, are you going to rent it faster because you've got uh, that community, or anything else? I'm not sure if we rent it faster, but I think people stay longer. And okay. so we have less turnover. And I've been really pleasantly surprised. We have below a 3% uh, vacancy out there in the apartments. Oh, wow. That's and great. And so for that kind of a complex to have that low of a vacancy factor, I think is attributed to that relationship that people have with one another. That's great. Do you have any good tips for finding that kind of manager that can handle that? And by anybody, I mean like finding – like, do you have any tips for me on how I can <laughs> that manager? Always what's in it for Brandon. And right? if, if you can give me their phone number, I'll give them a call. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's right. You live nearby. Yeah, don't do that. That would be a yeah, bad idea. Oh, yeah. You know, the, yeah. the irony is my realtor told us to get rid of her when we bought the property. Really? Interesting. And, and yet we communicated to her, talked with her, worked with her, and found that we were able to mold her and shape her kind of the direction we wanted to go. And she was very well suited to the community. Uh, she was very well suited to that building and the structure. She had some leadership abilities that I don't think had been developed before, but she's risen in that. And, uh, you know, she's not the same person she was eight years ago uh, to the better. And yeah. so nice. our relationship with her has grown. We've done some things together. We sent her and her husband down to Disneyland after they had been there for five years as a big thank you. And so really kind of, doing some special things and some mile markers for her to acknowledge that and to build some loyalty uh, has really paid off for us. That's, That's cool. Do you, yeah. do you pay her just in free rent or do you guys give her money as well or how does that work? In that case, yeah, she gets a, a room plus a, a little cash bonus on top of that. Okay. Okay, nice. cool. Nice. Yeah, I, mean, I think no, it's not, not, a, not a bonus. It's a stipend. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, it's, and she knows what that is every month, but then uh, we'll do bonus things from time to time. Yeah, that's very that's cool. Great. I, I yeah. love the I love the concept in theory of a resident manager. You know, I, but I've gone through three or four of them now, and and they all they're okay. And and really, what I what I think, especially after hearing you talk, like the words you use are like, you know, we molded her, we shaped her, we led her, we guided her. It's the same words that like Josh uses, right? As like the CEO of like you know, in developing a team. And, and I think that's where I've fallen short. And I've said that before: is I'm I'm just not very good at managing people. And as a result, I don't mold them. I just, oh, they're not good enough. Get a new one. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. let them go. So actually, this afternoon, I have, uh, I'm having dinner with my resident manager to go, to go over some training. So you're going to mold her? <laughs> it's a him, but yes, I'm going to work on molding him. A there, little you bit, so. there you go. There you go. No, that's awesome. Cool. That's awesome. Hey, Kurt, I, I know I'd mentioned the negatives. I asked you what the downsides were. What are the upsides? What are the positives? And then we're going to really quickly wrap this segment up and move on to our, our next section here. Uh, positives to, to the mixed use, use yeah, property. Yeah, yeah. A, a diversity of income sources, I think, would be the most obvious. And uh, when one thing isn't performing, the other is. And uh, so I, I think there's some flexibility with that. And it attracts people to that property. Hopefully, they complement one another. So I've got people upstairs in the... Uh, in the residents that come down to get their hair done or they nice. come down to get their nails done at the nail shop. And, yeah. uh, and I've got an attorney in there. So it's one stop shop. You know, you go get your nails done, get your hair <laughs> done, get your will updated. 
<laughs> do you need to have experience, you know, as, as a newbie, say some, you know, somebody decides, Hey, you know what? This sounds interesting. I want to go buy my first multifamily, not my multi, uh, mixed use. Mixed use. And I found one and it's got a restaurant downstairs and apartments upstairs. Do I have to know about the restaurant business to get into that? Or do I have to generically kind of understand how to rent out a commercial property? What do I need to know to, to kind of get into this? Because I think there is a, somewhat of a transition from going from residential property to some of that uh, uh, commercial and retail. Yeah, I think there definitely is. I, I, I don't think you need to know about every business. But you need to have some people on your team that do. Okay. And so be that your realtor, your attorney, whoever that can look over that contract and say that's appropriate for this type of business. And, and there's some things with a restaurant particularly as opposed to the attorney in, a, in an office where he doesn't use anything but a little bit of heat in, in the front door. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, yeah, there's definitely some things with liability, your insurance, utilities, all those kinds of things, common use, maintenance area, yeah. some of that kind of thing. And the other thing you got to know is uh, your percentage of commercial versus residential. And lenders are going to look at that and they're going to say, oh, you got too much commercial exposure. We don't want to lend to you. And so they're going to look at a percentage and you'll want to talk to your lenders to say, well, how much, wh- what's your typical percentage is probably an 80-20 or something to that nature. They want mostly residential as opposed to commercial. Gotcha. Gotcha. That, that makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, would you recommend that newer investors uh, invest in mixed use or you would say wait until you've got a little more experience? If you've got a good team behind you, you know, go for it. My personal preference is residential. And if I were, as I move forward, I'm not so sure I'm going to be looking for more mixed use or commercial. I know there's some other guys on the, uh, on the forums that are all hyped about it and they love it and that's their wheelhouse. They understand it and yeah. they're going with it, but uh, that's not mine. Hey, really, really quickly, you had mentioned realtor, lawyer, other, other folks, and, and this is a broad generalization that's going to piss off a lot of realtors, but that's okay. Um, so generally, you know, I've, I've found that, that residential real estate agents don't know anything about uh, investment property. Yeah. On the other hand, commercial agents tend to be far, 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 far more sophisticated. And so, you know, if you need somebody to lean on, I, I think turning to a, a local uh, commercial agent is probably going to be a really, really good bet. And and I think there's probably a lot less training that would need to be done than would be would need to be done on a residential agent. I concur fully. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know, folks, lean on those uh, local commercial guys because they can certainly help you out. Yeah. Well, you you mentioned your strategy is not necessarily to go to more commercial. Uh, what is your strategy like? What what does your future look like? Like I told you, I'm still growing, still learning. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, my future, I uh, anticipate, you know, this this transition that should take place by the end of this year. The, it's its own acquisition in itself. Right now, I'm in a 50-50 partnership. I'm going to take over both of these properties. I'm going to take over an additional 33 units that will be mine, zero down, and then a graduated payment structure. So, you know, a partnership buyout is another way to buy property, zero down. Yeah. Hmm. I, yeah, I I didn't put that in my book, <laughs> which you can get at biggerpockets.com. Oh, stop. No money. <laughs> oh, stop. I got to tell you, I'm sitting here, I'm looking at these two guys and I'm thinking, what did I do wrong? I'm like, I'm sitting, I got two pastors eyeballing me the whole time here on Skype. I'm just, uh, I'm just a leader. Not a, no, something. I don't get the big P happened. word. All right. All right. All well, right. let's, let's move on, Kurt. We've got the next section of our show, which is. It's time for the fire round. 
All right, the fire round. These questions come straight from the Bigger Pockets forums. So let me let me throw them at you. Uh, number one, if a landlord doesn't want to manage their own property, should they get a property management company? And I'll add to this, or should they like raise up a resident manager? I'll kind of tweak the question to be a little more fitting for this. Should they hire just a typical property management company or raise up their own? I'm assuming you've got uh, enough property to do that with and not a single family residence or a duplex. Okay, uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, that one works so well. It's a good assumption. Uh, yeah, so yeah, again, it's going to depend on your interests, abilities, and tolerances as to whether you're able to work with the individual who's doing it and oversee your your on-site manager, or if you are wanting to travel the rest of your life and leave it in the background and just collect a paycheck. And uh, depends on you know where where you're headed. So uh, I think there's some advantages to both of those, and there's some downsides to both of them too. Great, great. Next question. When a renter pays a security deposit to a landlord, where does it go? I mean, does it all go into a single bank account or are there separate bank accounts for the, uh, for the rent checks and the security deposits? How is that kind of handled? Pizza fund. Yeah, there you Pizza go. Washington fund. state law requires us to put that in a trust account separate of our operating fund. Okay. Yeah. And I think most states are probably like that. Yeah. 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 And by the way, if they're not doing that, <laughs> happened to me, you know. Yeah, bad things can happen. Bad things can happen. <laughs> you don't want to spend that money and not have it available in the end. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I had a I had a property manager who was was commingling. Not only were they doing that, they were commingling funds of like all their people. Yeah, it was that was fun. Yeah, fun. that was fun. awesome. All right. All right. Uh number 3, how do you screen? How do you screen for good tenants? Oh, well, I, I meet my tenants. I talk to them on the phone. I meet them at the site. Uh, you sure I, you're asking the right guy that, that question? I mean, he did say he's got <laughs> prostitutes and drug lords living in his apartment unit. So I, I don't know. Maybe we should find a different question. <laughs> They're not living there now. Oh, sometimes oh. they find friends and get influences uh, that redirect that their lives. You know? so, uh, yeah. I'm just kidding, Kurt. Sometimes I do wonder what uh, if I'm screening, but uh, I, I use a professional agency to do that and currently i'm using the washington landlord association to, okay. to process my um my residence right nice, nice. and what, what do you look for i'm just curious like what what are the red flags um that you would say no i will not rent to this person well first of all i want to know that you can pay your rent on time every time and i want to know secondly that you're going to take care of my property uh so all the questions are going to revolve around that they're going to come back down to those, those issues how long have you been on your job? Is it a brand new job? Did you just move to town? And I just talked to a guy who just moved here from as far away as I can imagine. And uh, he's ready to jump in tomorrow. And so, you know, if they're looking at something right now, right today, as quick as I can get there, that's a red flag. And so I tend to put the brakes on them and say, hey, well, it's going to take us a couple of days to process this. Yeah. And, uh, I let them know. Yeah, you know, we're looking at your criminal history. We're looking at your rent history. We're looking at your income history. And uh, sometimes when I tell them that, they just decide not to call back. Yeah. What are yeah. the criminal things that uh, that that would give you red flags? I mean, do you do you let any kind of criminals in, or or just you know just prostitutes? <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell my wife. Uh, <laughs> I I tend to be a second chance kind of guy. But I'm not a third chance guy. Okay. And so uh, I have taken some people that others I'm sure wouldn't. 
but it depends on the property that I'm putting them in as well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you've got some assaults or you've got some uh, domestic issues, you're not going to fit into my complex. Yeah. Uh, if you've got some theft issues, that's not going to fit real well. Uh, some of the other issues, you know, I, I, I talk to people. I talk to them pretty straight. I, I had a guy that showed up and I knew that he had some issues and that's why he was talking with me. And then he shows up at 10 o'clock to see the place and I smell alcohol in his breath. And so I look him yeah. straight in the eye and I says, is this going to be a problem with us? <laughs> you know? yeah. And what, what are you doing to work with this, to deal with this? Are you going to meetings? Are you, you know, it is $1,100 a month unit. So, you know, I, I want to know that you're not going to trash my unit. I want to know you're not going to have big parties there. I want to know, um, you know, your income source and how long you've been there and, you know, some of those kind of things. Right on. Right on. Yeah. Great. Well, final question here for the fire round is, do you use the same rental agreement for all of your properties? Yes. Okay. Fair enough. Even, even commercial ones? I'm oh, assuming well, that would be different, oh, well, right? Yeah, that, that, that is different, but all the, all the residentials are the same. Perfect. Okay. Cool. cool. Now, right in, in fairness, some of the rule sheets are a little different. Uh, out in Shelton at the mixed-use you know, dorm-style housing, it's a little bit different than it is you know, in the other complex. Gotcha. Sure. Cool. Fair enough. No fraternizing in the uh, common areas. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. No smoking in the building. Uh, yeah. Of course, we have no smoking anywhere in our buildings, but uh, it, it's a bigger issue there. Yeah. Gotcha. Right on. Cool. Cool. All right. Moving on to the end of the show, the segment that we were going to call our famous four. All right. The famous four. Uh, we ask everyone these questions and uh, let's see what you got to say. Number one, what is your favorite real estate book? Favorite's a tough word. It's usually the one I'm reading. <laughs> nice. Uh, yep. But I've benefited from a lot of them that I've read. And, you know, I would say the Rich Dad series, particularly McElroy's Advanced Guide to Real Estate, yeah. uh, Millionaire Real Estate Investor with Keller, and the one I mentioned earlier, uh, Mark McKenzie's Marketopoly, was written right after, well, I think it was 2007, and it really dealt with some of the downturn and how to make money in that and how to evaluate properties. He did a good job of that. Uh-huh. Uh, but let me throw one out just for landlords especially. And, and if you just want a couple hours of some humor and practical insight, a little bit of a cynical edge, uh, The Care and Feeding of Tenants by Andy Kane. Never heard of and, it. Oh, it. It's a bit of a kick. Uh, <laughs> seasoned landlords are going to really enjoy it. They're going to identify it. New guys are going to certainly learn from it as well. Oh, cool. great. That's great. That's yeah, great. That's I, excellent. Yeah, yeah. All right. What's your favorite business book? I like Drucker, Peter Drucker, uh, the effective executive, you know, getting things done and the right, the right things at the right time. But uh, more recently, uh, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, uh, Thou my shalt type of prosper, <laughs> 10 Commandments for Making Money. And, and I'll tell you why. Uh, we're in a strange, you know, anti-capitalist climate, it seems. And he really gives us permission to be successful, nice. shows us the moral imperative of being ethically uh, successful and how that translates to benefit not just you but society and uh, the community in in general. That's cool. That sounds really good. Yeah, you know, it, it that's a pet peeve of mine. You know, this anti-capitalistic thing that's happening in our society <laughs> these days. I mean, I don't know. It's always the guys who are sitting there on wads of cash that are bitching and moaning about how bad it is. <laughs> so you know, what are you going to say about it? <laughs> what do you All do? right, hobbies. What do you do for fun? Oh, we have a lot of interest around my house. We love to travel. You know, my home is fairly simple because we like to go other places and spend our money doing things and making memories. So that, that's a big thing. Um, uh, I, my boys and I took up scuba diving. Uh, we do 
have done Puget Sound, but we really enjoy going to the warmer climates. Nice. Yeah, and I don't so, blame you. Uh, we, we like that. So dining out, traveling, both stateside and, and internationally. Oh, right on. Cool. Real cool. passion. All Sounds right. Like fun. My final question of the day. What do you believe sets apart successful real estate investors from those who uh, either give up, fail, or never get started in the first place? Yeah, I think people who bring value to the market succeed. And so I, I think it's kind of key to find ways to serve other people. And no, here comes my ministerial hat, you oh. know, <laughs> uh, a paraphrase Jesus discussion with his disciples. And they were wanting to know who's going to be the top dog. And Jesus basically said, if you want to be great, be the servant of all. And so I say, whatever you're doing, find a way to meet the needs of others, find ways to benefit others and make a win-win situation out of it. And that brings a lot more benefit than the, you know, a one-time shakedown. Yeah, right on, right on. I think that's great. And even for those of us who uh, uh, are, do not ascribe to uh, the J-Man, I think, I think we all w- we could agree to that. I mean, you know, just be, be good to other folks. And I think it kind of pays itself back. Yeah. So that's okay. awesome. Well, Kurt, it's, this has been fun. It's been fun, yeah. you know, except for the part where you eyeball me and make me feel <laughs> guilty. But uh, that has been a lot of fun, and, and we definitely appreciate having you on board and sharing your wisdom. And we love that you're part of Bigger Pockets community. Uh, where can people find out more information about you? I'm assuming, obviously, on the site. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on the site, and uh, you know, y- you can uh, message me there and connect. Connected with a fellow this morning, had a great time together, and so uh, we appreciate the opportunity to be there and, and what you got going on it. That was the fellow that you had breakfast with who you decided you weren't going to partner with. So maybe you <laughs> <Yeah>. shouldn't message him. <laughs> hey, but we're going to be in touch and we're going to, you know, bounce ideas back and forth and some deals and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll both glean from that. Yeah, yeah. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, listen, thanks again. Really, really, we do appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much. All right, guys, this is show 95 of the Bigger Pockets podcast with Kurt Bidwell. We really do appreciate his time and energy. You can find the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash show 95. If you are not already an active member of Bigger Pockets, we definitely encourage you to jump on the site at www.biggerpockets.com, create a profile, engage, connect with your peers, get involved. Follow us on our other social media Facebook, Twitter, G, LinkedIn, YouTube, and, uh, you know, get out there, do things, do it the right way, be moral, be ethical, teach your kids, teach your kids how to do this stuff, get them excited about business and, and about, you know, uh, entrepreneurship. I, I think that's just really, really important. And that's it. Make things happen, guys. Have a great week. We'll see you next time on the Bigger Pockets podcast. I'm Josh Dorkin, signing off.